When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're gonna care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? You really think they're gonna let you interfere with their plans for this thing? They think we're... we're crud. And they don't give a fuck about one friend of yours that's... that's died. Not one. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Fuck it. Let's go for it. You're listening to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Patrick R. Green. And Christian Motzka. Welcome to the show. And today we are here with uh, a guest of ours who's been on the show a couple of times. It's been a long time, probably a couple of years. Probably the last time you were on the show was during our event for Shoal of Orion, which was in 2019. Charles de la Zarica, welcome to the show. Uh, hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Sure. We're incredibly excited. Listeners might be going, wait a minute, there's another Alien 3 assembly cut commentary coming right on the heels of the left. Well, it's because the person who made the assembly cut reached out to us. He's, you know, as we said, a friend and, you know, a a frequent contributor here and was like, you know, you guys kind of messed a couple of things up. I got like set the record straight. You know, I got some stuff to say about this. And we're like, oh, my God, what? Like a once in a lifetime. I mean, it's easy to become desensitized because you're so accessible and and so gracious with your time with us. But like, this is a huge deal for us to be able to watch the, you know, definitive cut of, of, I mean, at least for Jamie and and myself, our favorite movie with, uh, with the guy who actually like was responsible for getting it into the state that it's in. So, so welcome back. And uh, I can't wait to watch this with you tonight. Um, Likewise. And uh, can you really get too much of alien three? Is is, is that possible? I think that's, it's almost an impossible task, but um thanks for having me i I didn't really want to like you know force it i just thought you know it'd be kind of fun to do some kind of commentary on it with a little bit more added behind the scenes info that might be interesting to people but um and again because it's the anniversary it's a big anniversary for alien 3 and why not absolutely so just to let everyone know who you are Charles is the restoration producer of the assembly cut of alien 3 and the director of wreckage and rage the behind the scenes documentary that is featured on most box sets that you got uh, or th- that you would purchase. Certainly the original, which was the quadrilogy. Was that when you're no. okay. Now, now let's, let's start with the corrections. Um, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> the quadrilogy DVD set has the censored cut down edited version of the documentary. It's known on that disc as just the making of alien three because everyone okay. kind of threw up their hands and walked away from it. Um, the Blu-ray set, the Alien Anthology set, has the uncensored, uncut, complete wreckage and rage, wreckage and rage, uh, making Alien Three, um, and that is the full version. Plus, it comes with like an hour plus more of these what we call enhancement pods, which are kind of like deleted scenes from the documentary. So, you know, it's like it's like four hours almost of Alien Three behind the scenes coolness. That's awesome. Can I ask before we get into this thing that we're all here for tonight? Did you have anything to do with like the mother mode stuff? 
I did. No, I mean, I, I was, that was all the alien anthology set was like this big, huge project that, you know, crossed all four films, went all the way back into the archival materials that existed previously, stuff on the shelf. We pulled down stuff that hadn't been seen in a while. We put back on the set. And then um, I worked with this company called trailer park. So the, but the mastermind of, of mother mode uh, was this guy named, or is this guy named Troy Benjamin, who's, really a big alien fanatic uh, as, as we all were who were working on it. And he had this idea to create sort of a, a way to access different types of content, di different types of information that was spread out throughout this encyclopedic box set. And um, so between Troy and then Raleigh Stewart, who designed the menus and also graphically worked with Mother Mode, um, and then just a ton of other people that, that were a part of this process. It was, you know, it really was an epic production. And I'm so glad it just kind of, you know, came together in a way that I think people seem to like because we had, that was kind of like what our third ish time of uh, biting the apple of this one. It's like there was the Alien Legacy set, which was like, you know, baby steps. There's the Quadrilogy set, which was like a big step forward. And then this was like, I think, the final step in many ways. So, um it was yeah no that was a, that was a really interesting um interactive mode i think for the box that i don't know if most people even know how to use but it's there if they want to figure it out <laughs> i feel like commentary tracks and behind the scenes documentaries especially to the degree that you did them are not happening anymore and so i'm especially happy that you're here today to do this because we're capturing something that isn't anywhere else you saying how you went through and did these things it's going to be awesome. I, I just can't wait to hear what you have to say. Uh, well, hopefully I remember everything correctly. Uh, it has been, as we discussed off camera earlier, it's been 20 years almost since uh, the quadrilogy set, which I really find hard to believe, but uh, it'll be fun to go down memory lane uh, with a really uplifting movie like Alien 3, especially. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do it. Jamie, you want to give us our countdown here? Okay, everyone. So we are going to count... Countdown from three, two, one to start the movie, and we'll get right into this. So, three, two, one, start. So, yeah, right off the bat, we've got this great alternate fanfare, right, of the Fox fanfare um, that you guys mentioned you thought was the first time it had been, um, you know, tweaked or played with. It, it might be the first time for the fanfare, but it's not the first time for the Fox logo. And I, I don't even know what the first time was, but I do remember um, the Cannonball Run did it. They messed with the Fox logo a bit and they had a little bit of a car chase happening during it. So um, I'm sure there's some Foxologists out there who knows exactly uh, <laughs> when the first Fox parody was of the, of the logo. But um, anyway, that, uh, that was, you know, it's a fun little aside while we, while we start. Um, but, uh, I mean, if you guys want to like ask questions before we get to the actual assembly cut, I'm happy to answer them. My first question would be, did you, was there anything that you wanted to include in this where the studio was like, no, we, we, we would rather you not, or did you, were you, did you get free reign or were there notes? Um, none of it and all of it, <laughs> what you just said, um, it's kind of strange because we had, we found this lost cut of the film right and fox was happy to do pretty much whatever and if fincher had involved himself they they would have done even more they would have done whatever he wanted 
So it was kind of like an open playing field, but there were restrictions in that. And I, and I think there were restrictions I really placed on it, which was I didn't want to create a glorified fan edit. I didn't want to just throw everything in that we could find because there was more, there were more scenes that I know some people know about because there's a bootleg VHS out there of an early cut of the film. Um, but that was not in the cut that we found. Like the, that extra stuff was not in the cut that we know was generated by Fincher and Terry Rawlings at some stage. So it had an authenticity that we wanted to keep. Um, so therefore we didn't add in any extra bits except for what, were, what was in that cut, which was originally called the special edition cut then the uh, assembly cut for some bizarre reason. Um, by the way, we just passed uh, a shot of the X-ray of Ripley with the, or the, we don't know at this point, but Ripley with the face hugger. That's actually Meryl Streep's face. If you, if you're interested, if you didn't know that, um, taken, I think from death becomes her because Alec and Tom, the creature guys worked on that, I believe. So anyway, I always think it's funny that that's actually Meryl Streep's face with the face hugger on it. Um, yeah. But, um, and by the way, Terry Rawlings, the editor of this was a big help too. He was, you know, he was not hands-on, but he was very much a kind of a spiritual guide throughout this whole process and kind of, you know, encouraged us on and gave us advice and tidbits of information regarding the, um, the different cuts. But, um, but yeah, basically short story, we found this cut and the point of it all, I thought was to conform to that cut versus just making a cut up out of whole cloth on our own which we could have done and Fox probably would have been okay with it. But I think people would have had questions like, well, what's the, the providence of this cut? You know, what, where does it come from? And this way we can say, we found a cut. It came from the guys who actually were making the film and you've never seen this cut before. Here you go. Did that answer your question more or less? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Is there ever any talk of putting in the, the, I believe there was a planned shot of the EEV hitting something or being damaged to explain why it crashes the way that it does. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Actually, where'd you get that from? Because it oh, might be true. Might be true. Also, the the glass on Ripley's um, cryotube is, is is cracked open. That's the that's the big clue. Right. I don't know. Um, it might be it might be straight out of the uh, the novelization. Mm. Might have had that, which doesn't make it part of an earlier script at all, but. But, you know, it's funny because novelizations and children's storybooks tend to plant false memories in people's, you know, in people's heads where they, they, they could have swore they saw Luke and Biggs on Tatooine on the CBS broadcast of Star Wars and they didn't. You know, it's like things like that. So um, it's possible that might have been a novelization that uh, just kind of leaked into people's memories of the film. Um, and so now we're about to get into the first special edition slash assembly cut footage. And, um, you know, th it was interesting because when we found that cut, a lot of shots, including this one right here with the chains and the, the kind of like the industrial structures in the background, they weren't there originally. It was just plates uh, of what was shot in England. And um, we had to basically put together a list of, shots that visual effect shots that needed to be finished so that the assembly cut uh would make sense uh the story of it would make sense and that's where richard edland uh helped out a bit and this goes to a, a thought i had about something that was said in your previous commentary um was that there, there were no notes from fincher there are no fincher notes discovered that helped us at all it was notes from richard edland 
and storyboards from Richard Edlin that guided us through these new visual effect shots that had to be completed. So that was our, our biggest help in terms of not having someone to tell us exactly what to do. Um, it was easy to restore picture and sound more or less to, to you know, the, uh, the cut that we found, but visual effects were completely like, there was no reference really. The, there was like maybe two shots that were finished, but uh, Richard Edlund's notebook was a huge help. Like that completely got us through shots like this, for instance, um, which uh, some of the map painters from Alien 3 came back and, and did work on these shots. Um, and, you know, and then, and this, by the way, this scene reminds me in particular of the audio work that had to be done because when they shot this scene, you have all like these smoke blasts and steam and things that are creating all kinds of bad sound, which you hear in the DVD version of, in the quadrilogy set. That's why they need, needed subtitles for the dialogue. For the anthology Blu-ray set, Fox was very generous to have us bring back Charles Dance, Sigourney Weaver, and Lance Henriksen to redo all their dialogue for these new scenes. So everything here with Charles Dance, I had to work with him by remote. I can't remember what city I was in at the time, but he was in London. And I had to basically, quote unquote, direct him through, I think it was four takes we did of his lines of dialogue. And it's incredibly intimidating to direct. And I put, again, put those in quotes, uh, an actor like Charles Dance, who is, you know, a, a formidable and intimidating presence as an actor, but that's why he's so great, you know? And I remember we went to like take three or four and I asked him, can we try one that's maybe, you know, Clemens seems like he's kind of smoldering, like he's a little more angry. And I, 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 I couldn't see him, but I could hear the eye roll, <laughs> you know? It's like I could almost hear the eye roll from another continent, you know, another continent away. Um, but it was it was so great to have them back and 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 just, redo those lines to give the assembly cut, the Blu-ray version, that extra bit of polish that it didn't have in the quadrilogy set. Um, so yeah, we recorded Charles in London, um, Lance in LA at Fox. And then interestingly, we recorded Sigourney when she was in New York and I was in Detroit directing my first film, Crave. And we spent maybe 15 or 20 minutes doing her lines and we were on the phone for like an hour just chit-chatting about all kinds of things. And it was, that was one of the most delightful phone calls I ever had with an actor, especially that didn't even have to be on the phone with me that, that long. So she was, she was, she's always been wonderful every time we've had to work with her on these alien box sets. Um, and that was no exception. I love that that screen gets the age of new correct. Whereas a the theatrical cut has her like four years older. Is that were, right? Were those, yeah. Were those shots enhanced, the, these shots here? Did you have to do anything or, or was that existing footage? This is all existing footage. This is exactly where it was um, in the, um, the early cut. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll point out visual effect shots as I see them. We've already passed a couple of them. Um, but um, like this is, this is an effect shot. Um, this, this was shot in England, um, but top left frame you'll see the waves come in that was added uh, digitally later for us, for the assembly cut and, and the, the DVD cut, the uh, special edition. I'm just going to call it assembly cut from now on because that's what people know. <laughs> but you know, the fact there's like these two cuts floating out there and actually there's even a third one out there, which we can talk about later. But um, yeah, so that was, that was uh, one of the few little tweaks we did just to kind of bridge or marry the location footage. And then, 
you know, the world of Fury 161 um, because there are no waves there. And it ties it into finding Ripley on the beach, obviously. The seamlessness of those VFX shots and the ADR that you did with the actors after, it's like, I, I would never have, unless you were saying this, known that this wasn't all just the original missing footage the way it was, you know? Well, thank you. But that's, you know, again, that goes to the, the whole team just doing an amazing job and especially getting a chance to come back and polish it for the Blu-ray set. Like that was huge being able to do that. Um, and again, you know, something Fox didn't have to do, but they did. And I, and I will ever for forever be in their debt for that. Cause that was just a really great way to just finish the work that we really wanted to start and didn't get a chance to in terms of finishing. I think in your last commentary, you guys talked about how Fincher loves low angle shots. And I think this scene more than anyone in the film, it's just like, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a festival of low angle. It's just incredible. Like all these, <laughs> and they're all great because they add scope to the world, you know? Were there any other actors that you had to bring back for lines, for additional lines as well, or just the ones that you mentioned? Just the ones I mentioned. Um, and uh, the only one I got to do in person was uh, was the the session with uh, Lance Henriksen. And he was great, too. He was wonderful to work with. Um, it, it's funny. Every time we went out to people, um, whether it was for the ADR or for the interviews for Wreckage and Rage, it was there's this kind of like um, confusion from people like you're going to do what with alien three? Like why, why are you coming back to alien three to do anything with it? And it was just like, it was so funny. Like I had to explain that the film has actually developed kind of a following and, and it's been reassessed um, a couple different times. I feel like over the years, um, mostly because of Fincher's career uh, becoming, you know, as, as sort of legendary as it's become, but also um, because I think people just have allowed the film to kind of settle and they, and they, they kind of have seen other things that are as challenging as alien three, because at the time when this came out, it was really a tough film to watch. I mean, I remember seeing it opening day at the Avco theater in Westwood. And uh, my first thought when it was over was, God, it's too bad. This guy's never going to direct again <laughs> because I thought it was, his career was over after this, but I say too bad because I thought it was amazing. Like I was so blown away by just the extraordinary talent on display. So, um, uh, so fortunately I was very wrong about that. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, to me, it's just a film that's just endlessly fascinating because I watched it again um, a few days ago and I hadn't seen it in a few years. And um, the, the detail and just the, the choices that go against big popcorn studio filmmaking almost at every turn is just exactly what makes this a great alien film to me. Um, that the films we've seen, well, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, films that are like this, other science fiction films, other kind of sci-fi monster movies tend to be more in the aliens vibe where they're trying to be really audience pleasers and alien pleased audiences, but it was also pretty bold and, and, and dark and really, really, you know, traumatizing, uh, aliens less so, but it was still a roller coaster. It was a blast. It was so much fun. With, with some scares along the way. So to go back to the original tone of the first film was a uh, welcome for me because I really loved the first film. And as much as I love Aliens, it was great to see it go dark and disturbing and, and really kind of more challenging 
in a way that's not always it's not always successful. It's not a perfect film by any means, but it's still it, it, it had good intentions and it was just kind of screwed in the process. But hopefully it's kind of limped back to some respectability. As you were re-engaging with people like Charles Dance, for example, and you were mentioning that Alien 3's reception has somewhat changed over the years or that it's gotten a following, how do they react to that? Like, how does this sit with some of the people who made it the first time around? Well, the people who appear in Wreckage and Rage obviously have some sort of um, fondness for it, or at least their experience with Fincher, um, or at least they recognize that there are fans out there that would appreciate their participation. The people that did not take part generally are the ones that are either too busy or they don't, they didn't get why there was any reason to come back and talk about this or why there was any reason to do any more work on a new cut of the film. So, um, you know, everyone has a different reason for why they, they take part, uh, or not take part. And, uh, you know, and, and there's other weird considerations as well, which are like, um, schedule and budget for us on the, on the Blu-ray and DVD side of things. You know, we could have interviewed more people, but we ran out of money at some point, you know, we can't keep flying around the world, tracking everybody down wherever they are to interview them. So you may ask, well, why did you get this kind of random low level person, but you didn't get this huge, you know, big name because of that, you know, the low level person was available and they were in a, the same city as we were. The big name was somewhere else, you know, in some exotic locale, we're making a new movie. So, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing to be gleaned from going down the list to see who took part and who didn't, other than to say, you know, at that moment in time, that's who we got based on their interest or availability. Um, that's really it, really, you know? By the way, I got to tell you, it's surreal um, doing a commentary, considering I've produced and recorded so many commentaries and I know my method, which is I let the person talk until they ran out of gas. I let them go for about 20 to 30 seconds and then I give them a question or I wait until the very end and I ask them all these questions wild, like out of sync with the film and then edit that in later. So it's, it's, it's really bizarre to be on the other end of that right now with you guys. And now I know why people hate commentaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for you, we're going to composite some VFX in this later. You know, right. we're going to shoot some more footage. Yeah, but you'll be fine. You know. I love it. I love it. There's going to be an assembly cut of the assembly cut commentary by Charles Rodriguez. Now, were you surprised at all that, given the history of Alien Three, and certainly how, at least historically, among fandom, Fox thought about the film wasn't successful? Were you surprised that that they wanted to go and essentially restore the film and make it better for Blu-ray? Yeah, I was, I was, I was surprised, um, but very thankful. Um, I wasn't like shocked because I think Fox has had a pretty good track record in terms of picture and sound presentation on their films. Um, and, and I think there's definitely a pride in their, their catalog, especially kind of like the, the crown jewel franchises of which alien, I would say is one of them. Um, so you know, I was, I was very, very like, again, surprised, but not shocked. I was like, I was just very like happy surprised that, that they wanted to do it. It was like a gift really. And, uh, and the fact that it was done so, um, you know, Patrick, as he said, so seamlessly, it was, it was really, I was really happy that we were allowed to go back in and do that. And that Fox put the, the resources towards that. Um, and I think people that got the Blu-ray appreciated it because it gave, 
you know, home video collectors and alien fans something new to get excited about um, beyond just yet another package of something. And, and that's why with the anthology set, we tried to load it up with so many new and old things, you know, things that were not previously on the old sets, but fans knew about, and then all new stuff that fans didn't know about. Um, I think the anthology set is just, I mean, it's a million times better than the quadrilogy set. And people don't really take that on board sometimes because there's so much stuff on the quadrilogy set, you know, they go, oh, the quadrilogy is plenty. And then you look at the anthology set and it's like, no, no, there's, there's tons more, you know, there's tons more. We never found the, um, the, the version of the scene that people have talked about that was so painful to watch where her, I guess the, the autopsy was shown in a lot more detail. Um, we never found that footage. Um, not that we would have included it, but it would, I'm just kind of, I just wanted to see if it was as bad as people said it was. Because people often talk about like during the chess first scene, an alien where people were passing out or throwing up in the aisles or running out of the theater. And I was like, well, you know, it was scary because I saw it opening night in 1979. And I was a little kid. I was like 11 when I saw it. And it, it, it scared the hell out of me, but it's, I didn't pass out or faint or vomit or anything like that. I was kind of like enjoying it. Um, so I'm always, I'm always interested in these stories that get, get kind of hyped up over the years. My, uh, my Charles, wife's you have father. Insight? Oh, go ahead, Christian. Well, I just was curious if you had any insight on why there are flowers on four of the coolers. <clears throat> One of them has dog tags as well, so we can assume that's Hicks's. Right. But that, that still leaves two people after. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So let's see. It's Newt, it's Hicks, and then it could be, I guess maybe it's like, Two other prisoners that died recently, coincidentally. I mean, I don't there's obviously there's no one else to go to, right? Um yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe uh no, I was gonna say they put half a bishop in one, but no, he's on the junk pile, he's on the rubbish tip. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um I do I do love it as a detail though. I think it's a really great little way to know which which locker to open up first of all but it's just nice that the there's somebody there that cares um whether it's one of the religious fanatics or it's clemens or 85 Although it, it begs the question of where they're getting the flowers unless they're plastic flowers right no. well there's a lot of interesting decor in this film and um that seemed to be left over from the vincent ward wooden planet version that kind of like seems to tie in with I don't know, it's, it's kind of a more poetic film in many ways visually and i think that maybe there's some of that um in there as well um like the flowers to me is so that's something you have not really seen in any of the previous alien films you know or since so it's just it's just it's just this whole film is a bit of a bit of a fever dream it's a bit of a you know it's just more medieval in, in so many ways, going back to the wooden planet part of it. It's just, uh, I, I love that it has these strange little details that make you ask questions, you know? Um, whereas a lot of films after that are just generic sci-fi locations and sets and spaceships. Yeah, this feels like the best marriage of, of Vincent Ward and uh, Tui's script. So the prisoners plus the the religious order mm -hmm. and when we first saw the infirmary with those low angles you get to see the amazing um buttresses or whatever that hold up the ceiling and i can imagine how that would have looked with in vincent ward's version 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's also interesting to consider, you know, with with Norman Reynolds's production design, it's like how far did they get into the wooden planet version of all this stuff before Fincher came on board and then before they started angling it more towards prison colony did things start to go away from wooden planet because can we look at this you know this set for instance and assume this was a wooden planet set and therefore it would have been married to the notion of there being a wooden superstructure over this whole world you know and and i don't know it's like there's so much iron and metal and it doesn't seem to go with the wooden part of it you know and i and there's very little that seems to other than the design sensibility i think the again the kind of like bosch kind of like nightmarish again medieval kind of style uh is throughout but it doesn't have wooden planet stink quite on it you know i mean in a way that you would imagine um so yeah, it's a really this. That's the interesting thing about this film. It's such a strange hybrid of of so many different ideas, uh, rather than it being Dan O'Bannon and Ron Chassette or James Cameron. You know, it's like there's there's like you know where there's like very very strong voices telling the story. This is this seems very committee driven, but with some interesting people mixed in that give it some of that flavor that I think makes the film interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it's. If someone said, if someone were to tell me, yeah, this film sucks, it's a mess, I don't argue with them. It's like, I don't think it sucks and I don't think it's a mess. I think it's a beautiful mess, but I don't think it's like a bad mess. Um, but I get it. It's like, I get why you would disparage the film. Um, I just tend to look for the gems and the wreckage. You know, I just, I, that's what interests me with this film. That's why I love Blade Runner so much because Blade Runner originally was kind of mishandled, kind of botched in a way. Not as bad as this, nowhere near as close as bad as this, but it took a while to get that fixed, you know, um, to a point where I think it's now, you know, I don't say perfect, but, but, you know, close to perfect. This will never be perfect, but it's definitely more interesting. And I, and I think that's why I like this version so much. We recently interviewed an author named Sarah Walsh Larson, and she pointed out that this room looks like a crypt in a cathedral, the way that bodies are stored with the, with the marble. And so I think that if you apply that any sort of a religious architecture, any place you see that in the film could potentially have been a holdover. So the raw iron would fit for that, or um, definitely um, Andrew's office feels like that was the Abbott's office. And then they just retrofit it in a very Blade Runner way of putting technology in. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really great observation. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's just really, if you look at the storyboards from Vincent Ward's version and the conceptual art, the early conceptual art where it really was pure wood, right. <laughs> where, and, and it's like, I see almost no obvious wood here. I mean, there, there's obviously wood being used in places, but when you see this, like this amazing tile work and, and all the metal, you know, and the, the rubber and everything that's basically not wood it's everywhere you know where like where is wood obviously in that shot it's hard to see right so that's why and yet the design sensibility seems like it's kind of a strange hybrid of wooden planet and prison planet it's kind of like you know art deco vibe it's like that's where what world is that from it doesn't seem like it's from either world you know it's definitely not wooden planet monks and, and it seems weird to be prison planet um but it still works because it makes the place seem so ancient and old and forgotten and lost and like left to the you know 
the the rubbish tip of time. Um, so, um, again, fascinating. And and I, I think that maybe Fincher and Norman Reynolds probably worked in some of their own fetishes and loves of other films and other design sensibilities into this. Since I imagine at some point they thought, what the hell might as well, like this, this whole, this thing's off the rails anyway, let's just make it look cool, you know? And I, and I feel like that's why this film is visually so stunning, you know, at every turn, it looks cool. That's one of my big disappointments with alien resurrection is when you bring in someone like Jean-Pierre Genet, but he doesn't, go as French as I wanted him to. Like I wanted that City of Lost Children look. And I think that he was nervous about that being a, a Hollywood film. And so that film has a, a bigger budget, I assume, but it's so generic looking in the sets. And this, all the details on the walls, it's yeah. just, it's unnecessary and it's great. Um, let me, I'll get in that in a second, but I'll point something out right here. The super face hugger that's being seen in this wide shot. I've had people ask me, why didn't you go to a close-up of it? Because there is a there, there's a close-up of it. We use it, I believe, somewhere in Wreckage and Rage. And again, I go to it wasn't in the assembly cut we found. Like that is the shot we found. So again, we didn't want to fan edit any of this. Um, going back to uh, really quickly to the Alien Resurrection thing, it's like I read the script for Alien Re Resurrection about a year before the movie came out, and I thought, well, if that's how you bring Ripley back, that's how you have to bring her back. And if that's how you make the Aliens fans happy after pissing them off with Alien Three, okay, whatever, fine. But when they announced Jean-Pierre Genet, I thought, oh, that's exciting because you've got a very kind of like Americanized script, but you're going to bring in a very heavily European director that might balance it out and make a really cool alien film. And it didn't quite, <laughs> in my opinion, um, I, you know, amazing talent behind the, behind the camera and in front of the camera on Alien Resurrection, but it just didn't coalesce, I think, as I'm sure as people hoped it would. It's probably a tonal thing. I think it was a little too comedic uh, in many ways, but. Um, I can't remember. What did you guys think of the ox versus dog situation here? I like the way it explodes from the dog better, but I mm -hmm. like the aesthetics of the ox. I just feel like the way it came out of the ox looked kind of fake in a movie that really looks amazing. It just kind of stood out to me. But um, I prefer the dog because I think people uh, care about dogs. They don't care about oxes quite as much. Mm -hmm. And so it's a more sympathetic, more painful thing to watch with the dog. Um, and also it explains why the, why the alien is faster and why it's, you know, I know they want it to look like a puma. So a dog is closer to that than an ox, that's for sure. The ox is also dead, which is a very interesting, you, you know, we've never seen that before, an alien gestating inside a dead host. So it's almost like, it's almost like a zombie alien. It's like a zombie puma alien. Yeah. <laughs> All mixed into one. Um, but they make such a big deal about having to shave their heads. And then you have a dog that's covered in hair. Right. I mean, the ox, the ox has something too, but I don't know. I'm pro ox. I mean, I love the ox just as something different and unusual. And um, I mean, it's great to see all this footage, but uh, I guess I think going to the dog was a smart move um, for, for an audience for to, to have an impact on an audience. I think the ox is just too strange and doesn't make a lot of sense. And, makes you ask questions at a, at a point in the film where you don't want to be asking questions. You want to be emotionally locked into Ripley's plight and what's happening with her, her two friends. Um, Charles, yeah, the, the, la Sorry, go ahead. The, the lack of a dog does bring up something later that we're going to see with Murphy, where it appears that he still says spike when he's looking into the hole. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> we'll get that, there when we get there. That, that'll be the chapter on seamless branching that we talk about later. <laughs> he could say smeg. That you know, it's a Britishism. What was the sense that you got from if if you? even have these conversations when you're talking with Sigourney and with Charles Dance and even Lance Henriksen in terms of how, what they thought about the film that many years later were, were they, was it something they were still proud of? Um, I didn't, I didn't get to talk to, talk to Charles about it, but I, I spoke with Lance a little bit about it and Sigourney quite a bit about it. And um, I think that they felt the film really got a raw deal when it came out. Um, by the way, this is CG Bambi Burster here um, created just for this cut of the film. Um, as is this next shot, also CG, which I think is pretty good, to be honest, uh, for a home video release. Uh, I think it's, it's, it does the job. It conveys the story and what's happening clearly. Um, and it doesn't take you out of it like, oh, my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen, especially with the controversial Rod Papa shots yet to come. Um, but no, I, in terms of the actors and their, their thoughts about it, I, I feel like there's a feeling like the film really got shafted in the process and its reputation is worse than it deserves. And thankfully time has been kinder to it. Um, you know, there's a certain brand of alien fan that's always going to hate it. Um, namely the ones that are pissed that Hicks and Newt got killed off so unceremoniously in the beginning. And where did that damn egg come from? And all that, that, that whole crowd is never going to love alien three um, for the people who can get over it. Uh, I think that there's a lot to be, um, taken from this film, a lot of great value uh, artistically. It's not the most entertaining film. It has some great entertaining moments here and there, but um, I definitely think uh, it's a it's a beautiful, beautifully designed, beautifully shot, absolutely beautifully performed film. Some really great performances in this. In fact, I, I think it's Sigourney's best performance as Ripley um, out of all the films that she's done with uh, the character. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of weight to it that I really. Uh, enjoy that's not in the other films in the same way um the first two films are really purely about survival i feel like on kind of a low budget version and a big budget version but this to me is about survival but so much more it's about spiritual survival it's about um ripley as just you know an, an iconic hero for us it's her it's not it's about her survival but it's also about her not surviving it's about her departure and i think that if you look at alien as a film about birth and aliens as a film about life, this one had to be about death. And it had to be, it had to treat it, the opening with Hicks and Newt brutally because it, it, you needed to tell the audience that no one was safe. And this one, we find out no one is safe. You know, the, the hero of all heroes is not safe in this film. And I, that's another reason why I think it's so bold. And I think it's worth, you know, celebrating. You know, the thing they never tell you about doing commentary tracks is uh, is that you have to also not just watch the movie the entire time because I'm just sitting here like sucked into the movie right now. Um, it's so good. I just want to point out briefly something that I, I hadn't even registered before in that previous shot in the showers. Um, there's like paddles on the wall. And I don't know why I never, I never even registered how bizarre of a detail that was um, and what that tells you about the world building. Yeah, I noticed that the other day when I was watching your guys' commentary and I was and I was wondering... Is that a disciplinary thing? Is it <laughs> what? What is that? Yeah, what's up with that? Um, one quick question for you, actually, Charles, is uh, Paul McGann's role in this is like significantly larger, right? Mm -hmm. Did you like get to talk to him about that at all? Do, do you have an idea like how he feels about Gallic's, uh, you know, 
not not redemption, but his uh, resurfacing in this movie? Well, um, to be honest, that was one interview I didn't get to conduct on Wreckage and Rage. Um, so all I could go off was the interview itself. But um, I know he's happy that he's back in because when the film came out, his friends went to go see it and they're like, dude, you're barely in the film. You know, they were like, they were, they were what, what happened to you? And, um, and I know that he had some concerns that uh, with his performance, like he had, you know, he was trying out different accents and he was like trying to find different ways to get into Gallic and make him interesting. And I think he might've been concerned at some point that the studio was not liking what he was doing. So he might've blamed himself for him being cut out of the film, but, which is not true. He's fantastic. He's one of the best parts of it. So um, but I, I definitely got the sense from his interview that he uh, was very happy with what we were doing and that he got to, I mean, he is the VIP of this new cut. I mean, he really is, his, his work in it um, really takes it to a whole other level. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's the, one of the only actors, I think, that we got for Wreckage and Rage in terms of a new interview. Um, he's the only actor, I think, um, cause Lance, I did while I was doing the aliens interviews, I interviewed him for that. So we piggybacked alien three into that. Uh, and actually the same with Michael Bean and Carrie Hen to ask them what they thought about alien three. And, you know, get Michael Bean's wonderful, bitter stories about not being back as, as Hicks. So, um, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I really think that Gallic is just such an interesting character and the performance is so bizarre but like in, in just the right way i mean the scene when he goes to the toxic waste dump and pulls out the knife and you know says sorry 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 it's like it's so creepy the way he does that um and i, don't, I can't imagine another actor doing that like making that same choice you know i could see it being a really easily you know kind of quiet silent badass slash and does his thing and the fact that he conveys this pathetic like like just like remorse over what he has to do to re release the dragon um it, i think it's brilliant i think it's a wonderful moment there's such a renfield quality to to that character absolutely that for sure and that was a, such a new idea too for the franchise to have someone um see the alien in that in that light and do what he did I mean, again, for as messy as the movie is, it has tons of new ideas. It's trying all kinds of different things just to get away from what's been done before. Because, um, I mean, you could argue that Aliens borrows a lot from the first film structurally and in terms of just the basic beats of it. Um, where Aliens has fun is in the new characters and the new situations and kind of like the, you know, the badasses being uh, humiliated <laughs> by... Uh, by a primitive force, which is like a straight out of the Vietnam analogy. So that, that makes total sense. But alien three did not have that luxury because it's the third film. It's people are really gonna be tired of the same old, same old. So it's like, okay, we've got to be very weird and strange with this movie. And I think that they did a really good job with that, but with a purpose that just got muddled again, with all the production interference and all the, all the hell, all the hell that everyone went through on this film. Um, but, you know, sometimes hell on a production results in a, in a more interesting film, as we saw with Blade Runner, right? Um, but Apocalypse Now, um, The Abyss, I mean, there's so many films that have had terrible, terrible production experiences for a cast and crew, and yet they turned out to be really interesting films that they might not have if it had been a smooth sailing, you know, no problem production.
And I love that we get to see this side of Ripley that we've never seen before either. You know, um, people get horny (laughs) (laughs) and Ripley's a person. So why not? Um, But I I think that of all the people that she would have hooked up with, I mean, obviously Clemens is the right guy. And, um, and I love their chemistry together as actors. It's really feels real for, for being such a, I don't, I don't want to call it forced, but for being almost like a rushed relationship, it feels it works because of those two actors. They're so good. Now, does audio still exist of him singing uh, Paint It Black by, by the Rolling Stone? I, I did not find that. I didn't see that anywhere if, if it was there. Um, it might. There's, you know, there's like literally hundreds upon hundreds of boxes of materials at the studio, you know. And when you find what you're looking for, you tend to focus all your energies on that. And the little kind of like side quests don't always take priority. We, you know, if we catch it along the way, great. But we did, I didn't come across that when we were looking through everything. Did, did you, you had a question about the dog, about Spike? Oh, it, what he says in, in this cut, since Spike yeah. isn't here. Right. Um, so that's the thing. That's basically an, an artifact of seamless branching programming. Um, because I believe in the Quadrilogy DVD set, it's correct. I might be wrong on that, but I, I could have sworn it was, it was done correctly. And this time, for whatever reason, it, it was like, you know, the, the very specific time codes you have to program to allow for different versions to play in a certain build of, you know, clips. Um, it just, it, for whatever reason, it got missed or it was the wrong time code or whatever, but it happens because that's, that's a whole process that happens after we do our thing. Um, but it would have been nice to know if, if it had been caught, we would have, you know, tried to deal with it. But you could just assume maybe it's another prisoner, it's another, it's another dog somewhere in there. I don't know. Um, he's, he's talking to himself. He's thinking about someone back home. His character makes me think so much of Marion Crane from Psycho to have this protagonist introduced early on that you think you're going to follow the whole way through. And even his death scene has that echo of the, the shower stabbing. Absolutely. No, that's a really great observation. Um, and those types of things I think are, are really powerful when you, when you, you know, in, in, a, in a similar way, an alien, when, you know, he didn't die super early, but you know, you think Dallas being the captain of the ship would last, you know, like by, especially by 1979 standards, like, Tom Skerritt's probably the biggest name on the, on the cast at that point. Um, and, you know, you would assume he would go all the way to the end and be the, the hero and be victorious. And nope, he wasn't. And that's what was so great about the reveal of Ripley as, as the new hero is that she came out of the shadows. You know, she was like almost the most forgettable character until she wasn't, until she was leading it. And that was so impressive to see. So um, I don't remember, if, did, did aliens have an early death of somebody that we thought would go all the way. I mean, I can't think of one. Well, all three films have someone in a leadership position die early so that Ripley can take over. Yeah. So, so a pound being the one of the, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not Gorman. (laughs) No, not Gorman. Although he's taken, he's taken out of commission for a bit. Totally. But the thing is, I don't think anyone in the audience would would think a pound's going to go all the way. He's going to be the final 
you know, Victor mm-hmm. of all this. Or Gorman for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that exactly. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, you know, I working on, on the box set, I got to see the footage of, of, um, uh, James Remar as Hicks. And, um, you know, James Remar is a, is a, is a really good actor, but I'm so glad Michael Bean got the part because Michael Bean brought a sympathy to Hicks that was not there with Remar being like cigar chopping World War II, you know, Sarge type guy. And, um, you know, I thought Michael Bean was just so much like softer, but like in a way that made him stronger because you cared about him more and you really wanted him to get through this. And you, and you kind of saw him as a part, a potential partner for Ripley in a way, not just, I don't mean romantically. I mean, just as a, as a, you know, uh, a partner in battle, like a comrade. Um, but again, I'm sure Michael Bean would love to have explored that in an alien three that he would have been in. I guess that's uh, as good a point as any to bring up a, a question that I have from a, a listener who knows that we're doing this at the moment. Which is about about the you know the previous script versions, obviously, and putting this together that wasn't something you had to concern yourself with. But were you ever like in touch with, for example, like Gibson or Gibson's people or Tui's people or Ward's people? Were they ever like in the orbit of this new box set coming together? I mean, I know a lot of them. Like Ward is in the is in your your documentary, for example, right? Yeah, we 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 got Vincent Ward, we got Rennie Harlan. Um, in terms of the writers, we we reached out to William Gibson first, and he declined. And then we got around that time, we got word from Fox Legal that we had to be very careful in discussing other writers um, for, you know, Writers Guild rules or whatever. Um, and we do discuss them briefly in the documentary, but in terms of giving them commentary or interview space in there, um, it was going to be a little tricky. Um, and again, we're always worried about. <laughs> budget and how many people can we interview because each time we shoot someone it costs you know x thousands of dollars to do that so you know when when we got the word that we would have to almost pre-censor ourselves it's kind of like, well let's focus on the people that we can talk to and then we'll see where we're at at the end right um, um i was going to do a pretty detailed interactive guide um between all the different script drafts of alien 3 like a writer's guide and um, and I requested all the scripts, and I was gonna I was getting ready to break all that down, and then that's when I got the word like, yeah, you got you probably steer steer clear of that stuff because it, it you might do all this work and then it might get thrown out at the end because we couldn't legally clear it. So you move on. It's sad, but you know we tried. We we always try. That's the thing. It's like on all these projects that myself, my editors, my producers do. We we always try, um, and if we don't get to do it, well, we think about it for the next time. So there's almost always a next time on these bigger ones. How long was it for you and your team from beginning to end in terms of finishing this restoration? It's difficult to say because we were doing restorations, simultaneous restorations on, on one, three, and four. Um, And a lot of times some of the work crossed over, some of the people crossed over. Um, but the first go, the quadrilogy set where we did most of the work, I think it was about 14 months all told. And then when we came back for the anthology, it was about another year, but not for the same reasons and not all on, you know, like the sound work on alien three. So, um, you know, let's just say about a year, 
you know, all told. But uh, yeah, we, you know, we did um, a longer cut of Alien, like a complete cut with every deleted scene put back in and Ridley watched it and thought it was too long and boring and uninteresting. And I said, well, yeah, that's why your cut, the 1979 cut is the perfect cut of the film. The theatrical cut is, is your cut. This is meant to show fans what it would have been like had you put everything in. And, and he didn't buy that argument. So we got the director's cut, quote unquote, that's on the set, which is kind of a hybrid. It's kind of like in between. And then Aliens, of course, had already been done previously for Laserdisc, so there's no need to touch that. And then we did three, as we're discussing now, and then Resurrection. Jean-Pierre Genet allowed it. He didn't take part, really, but, you know, he he said, just so long as you don't call it a director's cut, it's fine. You know, just kind of do what, take the footage you've got, put it in, fix the effects. You know, really, he didn't really have much to say about it. In fact, we had to explain it to him a couple times what we were doing. Um, so, he, again, he felt so long as it was clearly not his version that we could kind of just do it with whatever we did. So, and again, we just, we did the best we could with the footage that we had found. Um, yeah, this set's amazing, by the way. Um, this might be one of my favorite sets in the whole movie. I mean, I love that it has that kind of cheesy eighties glass brick, but mixed with so many like really, really old ancient looking influences and yet some kind of like, almost like, it almost looks like a, like, um, Mark Romantic's uh, Nine Inch Nails video for Closer. Uh, <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds yeah. me of that. They're drinking out of French presses. I don't know which came first. Was it Closer or this? Probably this, I'm thinking, right? Yeah, yeah Closer was the next year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if Mark saw this and thought, oh, I'm going to borrow. He would probably kill me if you heard me say that. So I'm going to retract that line. But uh, trying, I, I should mention They're Mark drinking. because Mark, Mark um, tried to get me connected with Fincher for, to get him involved on, the, uh, on this cut. Um, I was producing the uh, special edition materials for one hour photo. And, and I asked him, I said, I, I know you guys know each other. And I know you share office space or whatever. Could you ask Fincher if he would participate? And he said, well, I'll see, I'll try. And then just randomly when I was out at lunch one day, uh, there was a voicemail left and it was Fincher. Um, <laughs> you know, Mark Romantic told me to call you about alien three and then click. So and that's, I, I, I tried, I tried calling it back and never got a hold of him. So, um, so Mark tried, he did, he did his job, but unfortunately um, I missed my shot because I was at the lunch for, you know, at the lunch hour. Was there an actual click? I need to know. Did he actually hang up the phone? No, it wasn't, it wasn't like a mean click. It was just, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was abrupt. It was just an abrupt end of the message. That's all. It's like you, you could tell like the, the the 12 words he uttered in this voicemail was about all he ever had to say about Alien 3. So I feel like that was. <laughs> I wish I still had the recording, by the way. I would have hit it as an Easter egg on the disc somewhere. But um... I love that they're drinking out of French presses. Yes. That's a little detail. But also that Andrews has one accent for when he makes his big rumor control presentations and then in close quarters his real accent comes out mm -hmm. and do you think that's a production inconsistency or a deliberate choice no, absolutely that's his choice yeah and, you know he he's got he puts on airs when yeah. he's talking to the prisoners i love this set so much yeah yeah christian i believe you you said this is the comfiest set in all of alien correct in all in all of the films, this is the one I would live in. With and not a dippy with bird Andrews there, and a dippy bird's there. Yep. Nice shot of the dippy bird right there. 
I might agree with you on that. I'm thinking back to all the, the various sets. Yeah. It's definitely the most kind of like cozy. I mean, maybe the Narcissus when you're listening to the classical music. Yeah. In the first film. That's. But it doesn't have like any of the, the comforts of home that Andrew's office tends to have. It's like it, it just feels like more like a proper office. And Narcissus oh. is just kind of a. Yeah. In, I'm sorry. In the office in a later shot, you can see a photo of Andrew's family. Mm. And it looks like maybe it's the actor's family because they're very late 80s, early 90s. And his, the, the daughter is wearing some sort of a superhero costume. It's very strange. Mm. I'll point it out when it comes up later. I think you guys were asking about the, the, the kanji or the, or the kind of Asian influences. Yeah, I was of, just about to bring that up. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, Waylon Yutani, maybe it's the Yutani side of it, you know? Good point. I want to talk about Nine Inch Nails videos. This this entire wreckage and rape for me yeah. screams Nine Inch Nails. I really mean, musically too, but also visually. You can really see like this is where like early 90s music video industrial rock like gets its its aesthetic from, you know. Mm-hmm. There's an attempted rape in all three of the first films. There's the symbolic rape by Ash with the magazine. There's the face hugger in the second film, and then here's the most explicit version. Wait, let's back up to that. Oh, oh you mean so the face hugger only gets loose in the med bay and it goes after? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yep. What about Resurrection? I don't talk about that film. <laughs> the entire film, I think, counts as one. <laughs> I have one of these jackets, by the way, one of these like tanker jackets or whatever um, with the, with the uh, patches on them. When, um, when COVID first hit and, you know, none of us were getting haircuts, um, my, my sweet mother-in-law came over to buzz my hair. And so I had my hair buzz for one, like one time, the one time in my life, but I took a picture of me and my Alien 3 jacket on just to, you know, memorialize that haircut. That's awesome. I like how they just, they just discovered cigarettes after all these years of being there. There's just like this, the cigarette dispenser that they just discovered. So is the concept that there's this place is just so sprawling from the original intent that there's undiscovered areas where things were left when, when most people were pulled out? Yeah. I mean, I have to assume that, but there's already candles up that they, they lit, they put up and lit. So I'm guessing that they are engaged in an ongoing mapping of the complex. Cause as you say, it's so big and they're probably foraging for whatever supplies that they could use. Um, but we know they get supplies from Whaling Yutani on a, on a fairly regular basis. So uh, that's why I think it's weird about the, cigar, the, the cigarette machine uh, as being like this big discovery that they have to, you know, has to kick in the glass on. Although it happens, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Just briefly, it, it happens contemporaneously with the first like allowance of swear words happening right there. So it almost seems like in this crisis of faith moment, they're like relaxing a little bit. So maybe they knew the cigarettes were there and now they're like, okay with breaking it because of what's going on. They're starting to say shit more often because, you know, maybe I'm giving the film too much credit, but you never know. I think you're doing a lot of heavy lifting for what's (laughs) what we're saying. 
when Reigns dies here in a minute, I swear um, Woodruff must be holding the the alien head upside down in the shot. I don't think it's a person in a costume, but it's not a composite shot either. You just see the head coming up from below. You'll see it in a second. It's uh, it's very bizarre, but neat because it's doing something that a human couldn't do. I jumped the gun on this. He hasn't gotten there yet. Um, that's interesting because uh, in Wreckage and Rage, there's a moment where uh, Fincher and uh, Tom Woodruff, who's in the suit, and Alec Gillis, who's kind of like trying to broker the, the body movements between the two, uh, Fincher's trying to get the head further and further down and, you know, the, he can't quite see. And like, it's kind of funny, like Fincher had all these different ideas on how, like what the head should look like. Is that it? So you're talking about um, when, when we cut back to his legs dangling, you're right there, right there. That's the head upside down because the, the head is touching the, see the curve. Yeah. It looks like it's on its side on the ground. Um, but you think it's upside down? I mean, I see the jaw. Yeah. Like physically holding it. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. Yeah. But that was the thing is like in that, in that scene in the, in the medical bay or whatever, that um, they were, you know, Fincher's more interested in the shadow that was being cast on the wall versus how the alien actually was looking in real life. So they were kind of like debating over placement of the head versus relationship to the body. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that maybe it was something similar with this, but it just looked better, even if it didn't make any sense. Which is off. That's quite. That's often uh, in films where you do things, and someone on set says that's not going to work. But they, they, you know, they don't know what the director is seeing. So I've I've encountered that many times uh, being on set, where a very you know acclaimed director who shouldn't be questioned is questioned, and I'm like, all right, you just you open the can of worms because I bet it looks awesome in the movie, and it did. I won't and, mention and what I'm talking about. Ridley Scott is is notorious for that, right? And, and yeah. a lot of his shoots, he'll he'll say like it doesn't matter; it's going to look good. And then, and he, I mean, he's typically right about that. Oh, that shot! Oh my god! Yeah. Was there uh, any challenge in terms of color correcting and added footage? Like, was that a whole process as well when you're adding footage back into? Well, it's an interesting question because. Again, it's like if Fincher had chosen to be involved, it would have been a whole different ballgame. It would have been like start from scratch, do whatever he wants. You know, was he happy with the previous looks of the home video releases or not? He could have done whatever he wanted. Um, so in this case, it was more about just matching what had been previously established in uh, you know past releases. So it wasn't. I mean, I'm sure there was some challenge to it with the colorists, but I, I don't think it was artistically that interesting because it was basically matching what was already there. Um, it wasn't like a director coming in and saying changes slightly this way or that way for six weeks. It was just like, just match what we got. Um, so it might've been, it might've been like legwork in terms of the technical side of it and finding the elements and making sure everything was, you know, seamless, but creatively speaking, I'm sure it's pretty dry, pretty dry experience for everyone that did that. Did you have access to the earlier footage of this shot? I, I, this was a reshoot, correct? Uh, it was an additional shoot. Um, they went back and shot all that in LA to get the, uh, I know they get the lip sync right with the audio. Um, I don't 
think we saw any of the previous stuff other than in the behind the scenes footage and before the actual close lip sync shots, which again, I think was the reshoot part of it. Okay. If I'm, if I remember correctly, like this is all LA, I think, but I think the other, this, this is London. I'm going to say that's LA. I believe if it was explained correctly to me, um, because if you see Sigourney with her real shaved head, it's London. And if you see the slightly puffier version, that's LA. Because that's the skin cap, the bald cap. Were all of her reshoots just for the very end, though? I believe so. I believe it was all for that final battle, you know, climbing up the pipes and all that stuff. So, you, I mean, it's really, I don't want to say it's obvious in a bad way, but if you know what you're looking for, you can spot the LA shots because, you know, it's just slightly bigger. She has a slightly bigger head. You know, um, <laughs> Mars attacks or something. Well, more like um, Alien Nation. Remember that movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the slightly puffier bed, kind of yeah. like that. Right. Like, what is he eating? Is it like a box of whaling atomic cereal? <laughs> just, just thinking oh, that I want to know. I, I, it's cereal of some kind, but I want to see that box now. I know. I just want to see the brands of, of the future. So That's Charles, what I love about that, Alien was like seeing like the beer cans and all like the little details of the cigarettes and all that. Yeah, the Aspen beer and everything. Um, a, a technical question. That that previous shot where it's it's coming down on Paul McGann kind of slowly from overhead. What 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 kind of rig was that shot with? And is that something that you think Fincher uses? A lot? I, I feel like there's a lot of shots of like slowly descending upper to lower views on things what, what how, how do you think he shot that I, I have no idea to be honest some kind of a jib arm or something i don't i don't know what i mean there's a, probably like 16 different ways to shoot that shot i honestly don't know okay. um i'm not gonna pretend i know <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i mean we're not gonna be able to correct you so you can't yeah I feel like this set's pretty cozy too, in its own way. It's very warmly lit. We've got the curtains. It just feels intimate. Yeah. No. I mean, if if Andrews's office had a bed, it'd be perfect. Um, but here we got beds, so you're right. It might be a good reason to have this as a plan B. Although there's a hole in the ceiling. It's true. There's there's a lot of holes in these ceilings in this film. In the mess hall, you can actually see broken not glass, but you know, whatever the ceiling panel is supposed to be in that previous shot. Like they had, they had either broken it or something previously. Yeah. So that's a nice touch. Yeah. No, it's, and it's very deliberate. Obviously it's like letting you know that it could come from anywhere. You notice also Charles S. Dutton, speaking of low angle shots is almost always shot from that angle. There's this really beautiful, consistently you know reinforced heroic angle on him a lot of the time i mean i guess everybody's getting it in there but yeah no he tends to get a lot of them a lot of power shots by the way as a as an indiana jones fan i just love that norman reynolds was the production designer on this film just the you know he's such a great production designer that uh to see him in the alien universe is, is pretty awesome. And was he there from the ward days on? Yeah. Yeah. He was consistent throughout, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the art department was there for Ward. I just have to jump in and say, having just accessed Bishop, where Bishop says it was with us the whole way, the alien, blah, 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 and the fact that the acid burns have been seen, I wish that she would say this to them. She actually has evidence this time. That's just my gripe. Yeah. Well, you can argue. Well, in aliens, they tell her that they, they went over the escape pod inch by inch and they didn't find anything. But here she has the evidence in her hand. So, yeah. You know, sometimes it's just convenient for the writers to ignore these things. Yep. Do you guys watch the, the pitch meeting videos on YouTube that that guy does the studio yep. exec and the writer? He should do Alien 3. Like, that would be a really good one to do. <laughs> that would be a great one. His Batman is brutal, but it's it's they're right all on. Brutal. they're all yeah. brutal. All of his are brutal. <laughs> if we all wrote in, he'd probably do it. And when you say Batman, you mean the Batman? Yes, I'm sorry. The I mean, new one. Yeah. We got to distinguish these things. Um, I now, by the way, I love the Batman because it's me the most Fincher esque of all the the Batman movies. Well, so as I, these I guys finally, know, I finally, got, I finally got the Fincher Batman movie I've always wanted. I was turned off by that at first because it just looked like seven. Like I've seen seven, but then I went and saw it and I, I got converted. So. Um, like I mentioned before, when this came out, when alien three came out and I said, you know, it's too bad. Fincher's never going to work again. I was like on the early, early bandwagon for like back in the old, like AOL movie message boards of like Fincher should direct a star Wars movie. Fincher should direct an alien movie or not an alien movie, a Batman movie. And I, and I was, and I was, I can't remember what year it was, but it was really early on. I said, Fincher should direct The Dark Knight Returns with Clint Eastwood as Batman and Willem Dafoe as the Joker. And everyone thought I was absolutely batshit insane to suggest Fincher being the director. And I thought, you guys have no idea. You know, you've only seen Alien 3. You've not watched his other videos and commercials. Like, he's, he's, got, he's got the world building and he's got the look. I would definitely have seen that movie. I was like, that <laughs> Another hole in the ceiling. Another hole in the ceiling and also more stained glass on the walls too. Mm -hmm. I sort of soft pitched um, the idea of doing an animated version of Vincent Ward's wooden planet story um, to someone at Fox some years back. And, you know, I got a nice nod and a smile and then I never heard about it again. But um, I would just love to see Ward's wooden planet story in some form. And I feel like some weird kind of like almost Eastern European Polish animation would be like appropriate for, <laughs> for his story. Yeah. Something really expressionist, you know? Yeah. Really cool. Jan Svenkmeyer. Or like Brothers Quay or just, you know, something really unusual would be great. Fincher's Coca-Cola commercial that looks like some sort of crazy Blade Runner mashup. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, the rollerbladers one. Yeah, it's great. Yep. <laughs> We're watching the movie again. Well, it's a big scene we're about to see, you know? <laughs> 
I love that the technology isn't sci-fi for the for the needles and injections. Yeah, I mean, did we see anything in Ashes like Med Bay that was like either this level of technology? Considering that this is what eighty, what how many seventy years later? I forgot. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven years later. Um, he has the laser scalpel that cuts yeah. the yeah. There's everything's a little more high tech. Yeah, the pen light, but it's all it's all believable within the world though. You know. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine that Fury 161's been around for 57 years. Would you imagine that? I don't know. Maybe. I, I've always assumed it was around longer than that. I, I, yeah. To me, this this is like you know, 120 years old. I, I think it, it reminds me a lot of churches that I grew up singing in because I was in a boys' choir for my childhood. So I'd always go to these, you know, all these cathedrals all over the place. And there would always be like undercrofts, uh, you know, underneath the church. And then in the undercroft, there would be like crypts which were sometimes actual crypts and sometimes they were just sort of called that, but they're these spaces that have completely different architectural styles. Like what you were saying earlier, Charles, that um, just like, it, it just feels like this mishmash of history that got kind of cordoned off and built around, you know? And, uh, and so when I, when I see this, these sets, I really think about that. I think about being a kid wandering those, those crypts and wondering like what planet they came from, you know? Well, I, I love that idea because I feel like if you try to, you know, fix each of these movies in a very hard canon with each other. It's just, it, you're always going to be disappointed, you know, because each one comes from such a unique, powerful director uh, with their own vision. And uh, I think that you can't really line all these up like you could, you know, a Star Wars movie or whatever. It's like they're each, each one. That's what I love about the alien movies. It's like, it's like a film festival. It's like, it's different filmmakers telling different stories, completely different looks and styles that just have a few you know, running through lines of certain characters and certain references to things. And then of course the alien itself, which has never looked the same <laughs> across any of the films, you know? Um, I love that. This is great stuff. Look at that. That is so cool. Yeah. That's chills inducing. Yeah. I mean, you guys know, is there anything in sort of like the, the books, the comics that tie in Alien 3 in any kind of detail to the timeline of anything else? I mean, is it, or are they just kind of like they do their own thing? Because I feel like everything I've seen has been very aliens influenced, very colonial Marines, you know? Well, um, there was a comic series called Aliens Defiance that borrowed those um establishing shots from from your cut where where when you see him walking on the planet's surface almost implying that there had been something we're talking over a great scene here i'm sorry um no mostly the comics are are individual like they you know just concerned with their own story because i feel like there have been attempts to tie in the space jockey you know occasionally here and there and um I, I remember on Prometheus, I was going to try to whisper to somebody that, like maybe Arthur Max or somebody that, hey, it'd be great if you brought the EEV back from Alien 3, uh, since you have escape pods on the Prometheus, but then, you know, timeline doesn't quite work out. I think there was a connection, just from what I know, I'm obviously no expert on anything, but originally for Alien Resurrection, Call was going to talk about the Morse Diaries. About mm. 
that's in the, the novel. Last prisoner from is it in the novel? Okay. Yeah. 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 Space yeah. Beast. Uh, well, in in the novelization by A.C. Crispin, they just say I read I read Morse's book is what Call says, and then the next author that took a pass on it was S.T. Perry, and she gave it a title, called it Space Beast, and said that it was this underground you know publication. And now the alien role playing game has run with that a little more to start making there be this uh, kind of an alien worshiping cult that uses Morse's book as their as their Bible. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. I asked um, what book these guys were reading. Um, Holt McElhaney. I, I wrote him on Twitter and he immediately wrote back and said that they were reading. Um, it was like one of those, like how to make friends and influence people or whatever that book is, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was kind of a fun detail. Yeah. Dale Carnegie right there. Yeah. Andrews has a, fa- a fanny pack on, which is pretty funny. The other question I have is, was this always a prison facility? Because it looks so nicely designed. And like four, we passed that shot was that kind of like deco looking like sculpture, like the, you know, with the. Well, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the scales of justice. So that feels fitting, but overall, no. kind of reminds me of outland a little bit actually this area Absolutely. visually yeah just masterful editing in that sequence i think every time i watch it i'm not sure this shot is necessary i feel like it was better just like being on his level and like what could be up in there um versus being like oh if the alien is there it's that's its point of view but that was in the cut as <laughs> in the assembly cut same with this Remember that guy from Sherwood? Are you guys in touch with a lot of the, the actors from this? We're we're working on it. Yeah, <laughs> I was curious, you know, because you, know, you asked me earlier what I had heard from the actors, what they thought of Alien Three after all these years. I wonder if you'd heard anything. Well, we, we had an, one of my favorite episodes ever, and I'll turn over to Jamie because he just unmuted it. I'm sure he's going to bring it up. But Ralph Brown came on and talked. He spent like an entire afternoon with us, and it was one of mm-hmm. the best interviews we've ever had. Jamie, is that what you're going to talk about? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was really great just to hear his take on shooting this film, working with Sigourney, of course, being one of the only actors in the film, one of two, to go to the end. Um, but yeah, we, we're working on a couple of others, but... This shot that we keep cutting to is like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You have her in the foreground Absolutely. and all the, the prisoners are, are smaller than her in the back. Mm-hmm. And that the composition of that shot in particular, I think is is like completely iconic to me in, in a way that like, it's, it's another one of these moments where you see how David Fincher knows how to put a movie together. It's just so iconic. The fact that her eye has now healed has led some people to believe that carrying an alien or at least carrying a queen influences your your rate of healing. I don't know how better to put it. Because it's, she has the bloodshot eye at the very mm-hmm. beginning of the film. Yeah. 
Well, I buy many, it. I mean, why not? <laughs> how many days have passed at this point? Do we do we have any indication of that? I mean, not that I know of. I, I don't see any kind of way to measure time in this movie, but yeah, there there is no there's no like go to bed, wake up scene. To well, there, there is go to bed, but not much sleeping. Right. Uh, yeah, they go to bed, but yeah. Hold on, though. They 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 have sex and then apparently take a nap because yeah. she wakes up and he's yeah. facing the other way. It's that terrible Hollywood trope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that appears to be in the middle of the day, because the scenes that come before and after kind of imply that. You know, they had a little afternoon delight. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. My head canon says it's like takes place within like a week or two. But my head canon says like less than a week. I just feel like the the alien timeline line of it all would not allow for much longer than that. That's a good point. I love that shot. That like back to nineteen ninety two, that was one of my favorite shots in this movie. It seems like a weird a throwaway dialogue on a silhouette like that, but it's so beautiful because it shows the map. It like tells you so much about what they're talking about. They recreate that shot in the comics too. The comics mm-hmm. that came out around the same time as the movie. A lot of shots in this, in the comic book, are shot for shot of the movie, which I thought was interesting. Jamie, did you know that the Dark Horse actually had to send the artist to the theater to watch the film to know how the the theatrical cut ended? Really? Yeah. The last issue hadn't come out when the movie was released and they, they just weren't getting anything from Fox. So they went and watched the movie and then drew from memory. Wow. This is one bit I wish stayed in the theatrical cut was the, uh, capturing the alien because it's, it's again something we hadn't seen before and kind of gives you hope that you might be able to beat the thing although would the alien have like drooled acid on a, a wall or something and climbed out i mean we've kind of seen a version of that in resurrection right that's true So uh, our, our listeners may not know this, but this is a this is a verite project that we're doing in real time as we're going. <laughs> so uh, because of that, there have been a couple connection drops uh, momentarily. We're not going to do anything to them because it'll it'll screw up the runtime of the track. So um, you know, just be patient with us. But another thing is that uh, many of us uh, our kids are going to bed during this time, so we've had to kind of sneak off and say goodnight to them, and come back. Uh, and while I was gone. Jamie tells me that you had a conversation about the expanded universe and ties to Alien 3. And, and I'm wondering, um, Charlie, did you get a chance to see the Gibson Dark Horse comics that came out two years ago with Johnny Christmas? And uh, um, I did not. I, I read Gibson's script a million years ago, but I, I did not look at the uh, adaptation, not because I didn't want to. I just, I just never never came my way. So um, how was it? Did you, did you like the way it uh, turned out? Yeah, I think he did an admirable job with it. I think it it didn't fix some of the fundamental problems that I personally have with the Gibson scripts, you know, both of them. But I think that the the art style is really interesting and it gets a lot of the body horror that's implicit in there and the UPP and all that stuff. But um, 
what's interesting is earlier when that, you know, I was asking about Gibson's participation, for example, when you were putting together the materials uh, and you were saying he was kind of reticent to, to, um, to do it. Johnny Christmas actually was able to like sit down at a, a coffee shop with Gibson. And, um, and th- this is of course, much more recent than your interactions with him were. And Gibson had kind of, um, I don't know if he necessarily turned a corner, but he, he was really excited to talk about his script with him. And he gave him a lot of like personal notes about it. And uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. This, this is a movie that evolves so much over time for different people, I think. And, and I, I, you know, I kind of hope that Gibson's one of them. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I was, I was kind of bummed that we didn't get him um, because I also wanted to talk about Blade Runner as well. Um, but um, just, uh, you know, just the, the cyberpunk of it all. But I, um, I, I think that would have been really interesting to kind of track in more detail the uh, the journey across like the development hell that Alien Three went through and all the different scripts and ideas and input that was given to the, all the all the writers and directors um, and of course he being who he is I, I think that would have been a really amazing voice to have uh, documented. There was yeah, a short thing. thing I was gonna say really quick. That, that's the thing about the Alien franchise. Like, there's never been one caretaker of it all so that's why it's so unwieldy um unlike maybe like a franchise up until the disney era that george lucas could control with star wars it's like you know there's a there's i i consider like the first six star wars films um like like with this way all of them are canon but i only consider the first six gospel because they came from george they came from the maker right um so I, i i think that um, I wonder what Alien would have been like had it, there been someone like that throughout the entirety of it that could sort of, you know, just be the caretaker of it all and keep it within a certain, uh, I don't know, certain rails that will keep it consistent uh, as a world, um, but then let certain filmmakers play within those parameters. Um, instead, we got like no no rails at all. And that's why it's gone off the rails so many times because whatever, just do whatever you want. And there's something fun about that, about the chaos of it, but it might also be why the franchise is not locked in on a bigger level. Like maybe Marvel say like Marvel is super tight with their, with their continuity, you know? Um, But just a random minor observation. And that Ridley Scott, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, do you feel like Ridley Scott is doing that now with executive producing the new Fede Alvarez movie and the Noah Hawley. Um, I don't know. Hard to say. Um, I guess we'll have to wait till we see it, see what those are. Um, Cause right now we've only really seen two movies uh, in, in terms of the new era of alien. Right. Um, and opinions vary on how successful that's been, but at least they seem consistent. You know, they, they seem like there's a, style and, a, and, a, and certainly a thematic material that's consistently across those two films. I don't know if the new FX series will touch upon that at all. I don't know if, I don't, I doubt the new Pedro Alvarez movie is going to touch upon that. I, I might be wrong, but um, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you guys on the new, on the new stuff. I'm just kind of like waiting to see what happens. Everything, everything I've heard is either confidential or, so far out it's kind of hard to take seriously um but hopefully it's good you notice there's like 20 guys falling from the ceiling on fire in this sequence 
Yeah, think of that. I feel like half the prisoners are in hoodies and dropping from the ceiling. <laughs> Charles, what what are your thoughts on the high speed camera sequence that we just saw? Oh, I mean, it's it's it was dazzling um, for me because I mean just. I was I was so enthralled by the film. I just thought, wow, that is a really interesting moment to just stop and make us pay attention to. Um, I almost feel like some people in the audience thought it was a mistake. Like they thought, wait, the, the projector stopped. What happened? Um, I thought it was great. I loved it. Um, and, and it's just so weird how just visually it's so different than anything else in in the film as well. Um, I'm trying to think if Fincher's done that in other movies of his where there's been like this one outlier like shot that's either the technique of it or the look of it or whatever is just completely different than the rest of the movie um nothing's coming to mind exactly but i think the beginning of fight club is maybe an example of that right the the titles or the or the through other the no the, the, the gun the on the nose shots going yeah, yeah, yeah i think you're right yeah so here's junior sacrificing himself is that his redemption arc yeah We should have added like some ADR of him saying, I'm sorry, I tried to rape you in the, as he runs away. <laughs> I've given up uh, policing social media to explain it's a rod puppet and not bad CG. It's just there's too many people out there just think it's bad CG. I tried though. I tried to explain. I made a, I made a meme of it even just to say there's only one CG shot in the movie. Um, people don't care. Catching the alien is such a fantastic idea because as an audience member, it makes you think, well, wait, what's, you know, the runtime. We're not at the end of the film yet. So I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's like John Doe turning himself in at seven. You know, to go to another Fincher yeah. movie, it's kind of like that's plenty of movie left after that. Yep. Um, that's what makes it so unsettling is that it's you. You have to wonder, like, well, what else? You know, um, it was like the Batman, even though it's three hours long. I felt like it kind of ended, but like I felt like it, there's still plenty of stuff to cover that we haven't covered. And then, sure enough, there's like a whole other hour of movie left, but. Um, like what you have the time uh, code on this, right? Like where are we at in the film? Oh. Our uh, our host is taking a bathroom break, so we oh, can't, I can't scroll <laughs> over to the moment. This is this is verite, people. We are this is live. This is winging it. Cuts. Yeah, we are winging it right now. I love those crossfades, Jamie. What's the time count? Time stamp? Yeah, so we're halfway through the movie, basically. An hour and 24 minutes in. Yeah, these dissolves are awesome. I think they're so beautiful. And again, unlike anything we've really seen in Alien movies before. I mean, that during the... Um, 
the funeral scene um, with uh, the the three faces of Andrews, Ripley, and Clemens. It just to me that was like out of Apocalypse Now. I was I was just so just like hypnotizing. Apocalypse Now and Alien Three have significantly more in common than I think people realize. Not not just the production that you were alluding to earlier, Charles, but um, mm. a lot of the the feel of the movie, this the sense of like abandonment the sense of what happens at like an extreme of human nature when things go wrong. I, I, I think, I think, you know, uh, we even have like a, a Kurtz figure. I, I think I mentioned that in the in my previous commentary track. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of narrative similarities too, between the movies. Who, who are you saying is the Kurtz figure in this? Andrews. Right. Cause he's the, this, this big fish at a, in a, he's, mm. he's become like a, like a sort of a local God to these men and that he mm. doesn't need weapons, but he has like complete control over them um, just by virtue of the power that he wields because of his position. There's, there's something that feels kind of curtsy to me. Do you, do you disagree with that? I mean, I think it's a really interesting idea. I'm just, I'm trying to like, cause whenever I hear of, of comparisons like that and parallels, I always, I mean, I'll probably now be quiet for the entire rest of the movie because I'm going to be thinking about this. So thanks. <laughs> but he has to wait for Dylan to say it's okay for the meeting to end for the men right. to leave. That's, That's my point. only. Yeah. No, as, as I was saying it, I was thinking he doesn't have, he appears to have complete power, but Dylan actually is the one who wields it. So but at 85, you could say is like Dennis Hopper, like the fool in a way. There we go. You know? there we go. Mm-hmm. Why does Morse live? 85 should have lived. That's, and, and I know Patrick and I have fought over this because Patrick says, well, the fact that 85 doesn't live, you know, it's because he's the obvious choice that he's the guy that ought to get out this. And, and I realized on this viewing that they actually say Morse's name right at the beginning. He, when he talks about taking the vow, someone says, shut up Morse. So we do establish his name early on. Well, but 85 needed his own little redemption in a way. Like he was so sort of like, perceived to be worthless um, and and cowardly that he then, you know, stood up in the very end, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, gives him a little bit of an arc. And Morris, more and, and Morris, Morris's last line, I think is an appropriate send off for this whole film. Um, <laughs> when the uh, Wailing Tiny Troopers are moving along, he's like, he's like, fuck you or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, this is a great way to end the film. There's the earth, the iPhone <laughs> wow. last time. It's a mirror. It's a Samsung galaxy. I think note. Here's the, the family photo. Right oh there. yeah. Yeah. Wait. And out of that shot, you saw, you saw a superhero costume or whatever. Or was there no. another shot You're elsewhere? This guy named Charles DeLazarica put together these fantastic behind ah, the scenes features. I and see. one of them, yeah. One of them had the photo. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look this stuff up. Sounds good. Um, yeah, he's good. He's good. I love that tracking shot into the scene. It reminded me of Alien when the ship is just waking up and then the it's going to wake up. And then similarly, it's followed by an interface readout, right? Which is also the way it plays out in Alien. Too. That's interesting, Jimmy. I hadn't thought of that. Can you imagine if this is the way computer interfaces are going to be in the year 2179? <laughs> it feels rugged, though. Like, it's not going to break. Like, right. maybe you, you reduce things out. Here's that scene you were talking about, though. Yeah. 
you know, this performance in this moment is great. So creepy. And that door is fantastic. Yeah, this is great. Look at him. Does Apocalypse now have a Gallic? Silence. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I have to think about that. I don't. I haven't seen it in a while. I love the fact that in these movies, certainly with Alien Three, and even they could have done this with Aliens, they don't update the tech. The tech is all congruous, even though these are different visions. It still has that cassette futurism, which we saw even in the prequels. There was this uneven quality to it, where one film looked really far in advance, the other one kind of took a step back. Um, whereas these three films, even Resurrection, on its face, kind of falls in line with this as well. It's that cassette futurism. Mm -hmm. And just going back to that that moment that Charlie was alluding to in the beginning, when Gallic fumbles with the knife after he kills the other prisoner, that that really is uh, it's a great moment. That it's just, it's it's such a complicated character who is so vivisected in the original cut of the movie. There's an apocalypse now shot if I've ever seen oh, an yeah. apocalypse now shot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. Can you uh, can you explain that that moment to us actually? What, the, what, the strange monkey alien? Kind yeah, of yeah. What's go, what's going on there? Uh, that was again. That was in the assembly cut. We didn't do that one. So that was a. There were a few shots, the visual effect shots that were somewhat completed, and we didn't dare touch those because we we again we thought everything that was actually worked on by the original team uh, was holy, even if it was unholy, <laughs> we still kept it. Um, and plus, we had we had so many other shots we had to do, so we let that we let it slide because like that was what they did. You know, we're trying to document the process and the, the different versions and try to be truthful. So there's no cheating going on. So that would have been a cheat had we touched that one. Yeah, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. But was that the puppet in that shot? Do you know? Yeah, for sure. That was the puppet. Okay. It wasn't Tom Woodruff. It, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was the dog, I think, actually. I was gonna say it was, it was either a puppet or someone threw a piece of chewing gum out the door, and that was that was kind of it because that's that's probably the least convincing shot of the alien in the entire film, and this is that's an assembly cut shot on top of it. So, right. Jamie, your point about um, technology and like interfaces, I think, is is really well taken, and I think it also says a lot about the kinds of technology that would be used in the sorts of worlds that we spend the first three films in, right? Because we have the truck, we have the military and we have prison and there's still Commodore 64 is powering things, you know, in, in our own country today. So like there's this, there's a hardiness to that aesthetic that I think makes sense. And I guess it even makes sense for Prometheus and Covenant in some ways for them to look so, so different because applicationally speaking, the technology is very different, but, it, but from a visual standpoint, yeah, it definitely throws me off. Well, I mean, you could argue that, you know, if Nostromo is basically a big pickup truck and Sulaco is a military vehicle and this is a prison colony, and then you go to like the, you know, expensive Lamborghini of spaceships with Prometheus, of course, it would have more fancier and sophisticated and more bling to it than these kind of more, you know, rugged kind of like, you know, Home Depot worlds that we're kind of in with the original uh, films. 
I can't remember what is the resurrection do anything interesting with their graphics. No, they, they, but they look more specific. They look more Battlestar Galactica than yeah. the other ones do. But it also takes place hundreds of years after this. So you know. I, I, just, I just remember that ridiculous whiskey cube that gets lasered into a glass, and it's like, yeah. what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, I was just checking. Though. I was just checking the uh, the star picks uh, baseball card, whatever you want to call it, for Gallic, and it lists him as, as thirty two counts of murder and dismemberment. That's curious what he's in for, yeah. And arson, uh, thirteen counts. But just the you get the sense that he hasn't murdered anyone since he joined the religion. And although they accuse him of murdering the other guys, this is the first time he's actually done it. That's so weird, though, because when he's asking Ripley about, you know, why don't you get married? Married, have kids. And he says that he knew a bunch of girls back home. I took that to mean something completely different, <laughs> given given the rest of the prisoners. I thought, oh, mm. he was he was a bad boy. But it so, makes more sense to be someone who kind of was a butcher and an arsonist. That makes kind of that's more gallic sounding. Yeah. I love how clean the EEV is now. Like someone went in and polished it all up and replaced the glass. It's no longer broken. Oh, man, you're right. Yep. Screw this movie. I'm done with it. <laughs> There's still the burn marks on the outside. Yeah. You can't get those off. <laughs> it's the same in Alien, though. Someone had to have gone in and cleaned up John Hurt's bloody mess because the next time we see the galley set, it's clean. So who yeah. did that? It had to be Lambert. I'm sure she cleaned it up like happily. <laughs> Whistling. No, it had to be Ash. I'm sure it was Ash. Like, cause yeah. Collecting samples. <laughs> exactly. So this is also the scene that proves that they didn't have to do an autopsy on newt. They could have just put her right in here and scanned her. Yeah, man. This film is collapsing as we further we get into it. It's falling apart. <laughs> One star. And I love this, the low-tech reconstruction of a high-tech concept, how they, they built the insides of, of a Ripley and, and photographed it. So I wonder, so, okay, so let's just go back to the Newt could have been bioscanned. Mm -hmm. um, so she's in the morgue, Ripley comes in and says, we have to take her back to the EEV to bioscan her. And they say, why? So, well, because she had cholera. Um, <laughs> I don't, it's just, is, is that too much of a stretch to like have them take this little girl's body across these, where all these rapists are and everything where Ripley herself almost got raped. It's like, that's, that's a trick, you know, that's a rough walk to take i don't know i doubt oh. she could have talked them into carrying the body out of yeah. the work so yeah and, and also i think there was an immediacy to her concern where like at that point it, they she needed to verify if this was going to be an, an immediate situation so you know if it, if they weren't going to go to the ev then they might as well just do the autopsy like right now and the other thing is everyone now believes her about the alien so like that's there's that to consider i guess but no you're right that's kind of a weird bump I love that it's upside down. Yeah. 
It's actually a, it's an Apocalypse Now reference. I don't know if. Uh... <laughs> One of the things that I find most fascinating about Alien 3 is how restricted the color palette is, obviously for you know for the entire film, except for some very specific deviances from that, right? Like there's the autopsy scene, there's some other moments like the EV is an example of that, the, the hospital ward. But another example though is is Dutton's fire axe in this. It just it just it's like a canary, it's not a canary, it's like a scarlet red color, right? And um and it just sings visually. It's just so look look at look at that. It just pops so hard because we see no red other than blood basically for the entire movie. Other than that, I know Fincher has kind of an aversion to the color red because I was um, I think I was at a screening of Benjamin Button that he did a Q and A at afterwards, and um, they were talking about color palettes, and and he mentioned red, and he said like I hate red, must have splattered it up against the wall or something like that. So he was kind of. <laughs> He obviously likes violence uh, to use red, but um, that was that's one of the chapters in Wreckage and Rage. It's called The Color of Blood because Fincher's so pick, you know, picky about what blood should look like on screen. And they go through a variety of colors of you know blood um, to get it right. And then I also think about um, The Shining, actually, because if you look at The Shining, the color red doesn't really show up unless it's a supernatural moment. Um, so I'm, I'm wonder if that's kind of his version of, you know, a power color used very minimally. Um, Cause I don't believe we see even, I mean, even the blood scenes in this are pretty brownish, uh, but that's not because of the, the blood it's because of the overall way the film is shot and colored. Um, but yeah. It seems like it's mostly browns, mostly grays, then, you know, later really rich kind of Amber. Um, I miss anything. Is there any other big, strong color sequence in the film that, Departs from that. No, that's it. I mean, even the exterior satellite shots are amber colored, right? The whole thing yeah. is just a wash with that. Now, have you got you guys have caught the Tyrell building in the background of it wasn't that shot, but there's a, the previous, the other like big surface shot. So Tyrell building's way back there, and then the crane, one of the cranes is an X-wing. That's also uh, like the hauling some of the actually. I think it's the crane that's hauling the EV in the beginning. The uh, support. Like the, the top part of it is uh, an X-Wing, or originally was anyway, because we have the footage in the documentary and we couldn't reference it by name uh, for rights issues, which now is not a problem given studios <laughs> that bought each other. Um, but yeah, we had to be careful about that on Blade Runner as well, because the Millennium Falcon and Dark Star both show up in one of the effect shots. Um, so in this one, I was told to steer clear again. So that crane shot would be in the theatrical cut. Uh, correct. I'm not sure it's that shot. I have to look at it again, but I, I do know there's a crane that uses an X-wing nose or the whole like snub part of it, the front part of it, um, as like the basis of the crane. Um, I have to see this. This is that is that is great. Especially we're recording this on May the fourth, everybody. So this yeah. is especially <laughs> close to my heart right now. I saw some close-up shots of the exterior model recently that had um, little miniature vehicles even along along one side that you never see that detail in the movie, but it's just neat to see. 
and again implies that this place was much larger and not just for prisoners. Yeah. The newspaper a second ago had a Japanese headline. Mm-hmm. I thought that was neat on the wall. And by the way, going back to Outland for a second, it's like I, I feel like you know Outland presents this vast industrial complex uh, used for mining or you know whatever they were doing. But then there's also a prison section, right? The zero, they got the zero gravity uh, cells that the guys are floating in. So it's kind of like it's interesting. I, I do I do wonder what the rest of Fury One Six One was like when it was you know properly up and running as a whaling tawny industrial facility, whatever, whatever work they were doing that just happened to need a prison section because they're, they're hiring, you know, these kind of roughnecks to, to do work that they, you know, they work hard, they play hard. And then suddenly they're, uh, they gotta go to jail because they did something. Okay. This blew my mind that whaling Tani has like faster than light ships. They can get there in two hours. Um, after saying you know, originally it was gonna be six weeks and then like two weeks, then two, two hours, whatever, whatever it was, but it's crazy. Like, uh, expediting arrival team two hours but i think that speaks to what we've been talking about with the technology which is whaling Tani will they will cut any corner they can find to cut right yeah but they have access to things like we see in prometheus they're just not that we're not getting it here but we never really get a sense in any of the films and correct me if i'm wrong that faster than light travel is in play like that's not you know (laughs) that's just cruising on up to the planet right and all the films have had that that same kind of shot where we see a slow approach and it's really cool, but you, I guess you could argue, well, the faster than light sequence took place before that, but I just have, I've never gotten a sense that FTL was in play in any of these films. And it had to be given the, 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 you know, expansive uh, of distance that they've had to cover, you know? Yeah. You can't, you can't terraform with uh, an afterburner. No. <laughs> I wish they could have built a new ship instead of reusing the Sulaco from the previous film, but they do a good, a good enough job. Yeah. Is it ever established what the name of the ship is? The Patna. The which Patna. Is another, yeah. It's another Joseph Conrad reference. Mm. Uh, Joseph Conrad wrote heart of darkness, which inspired Boom. apocalypse. Now I just want to say, you know, <laughs> Boom. <laughs> there you go. It's coming together. A lot of authors have, have jumped on that bandwagon. So there's been at least one USS Kurtz. Uh, for another, you know, another ship. I, inclu- I included, I included uh, the Kurtz as a ship in the um, Nostromo dossiers I wrote for the uh, the first Alien DVD as an Easter egg. You broke my heart, by the way, that you wrote those. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote you recently about it. Um, no, I know. Well, that's the, that's the tricky thing about it. It's like we looked for the originals and we couldn't find them. And then they turned up many, many years later. Um, but back then we didn't have it. And so Ridley just said, just, you know, do whatever. <laughs> just write your, write your own. You know, I basically said, is this okay to include you? Yeah, it's fine. So too bad you can't find the ones I wrote. And I said, yeah, it is too bad we looked. But then later they found them. When you were finished with this restoration, did you have to get a final approval? Um. No, I mean, Fox approved it, I guess. Uh, and you know, everything goes through legal. So legal approved whatever they had to approve. But uh, no, Fincher uh, bowed out. Uh, well, actually, never jumped in. He was like, no, he just completely, you know, said no <laughs> um, at the end, the earliest part of this. Because he was the first person we obviously reached out to. Um, and, uh, you know, just basically said, 
saw my movie, do whatever you want. So, and again, that's why I always tried to stay truthful to whatever it is they were doing back then versus just doing my own thing. Cause I know other people would have just done their own thing. And I felt like that was inappropriate, even if he didn't want to be involved. I think that's probably why the assembly cut has become so beloved by people. And I have to say, as you probably know, because I talk about it quite a bit, I I, t- I tend to go for the theatrical version just because to me it's tighter. But having now watched this quite a bit recently, <laughs> this is growing on me. It might be my favorite cut of the film. And I think it's because it still feels very much true to the vision of the movie because you didn't do that. You know, you didn't, um, you didn't screw around with it. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's fingerprints on it from Terry Rawlings and Fincher that, you know, no matter how unsatisfied they might be with this version, because obviously it was in progress and it wasn't, you know, complete. Um, it still came from them in some form at some stage, um, which if I had gone the fan headed way, it would have been just like, you know, it might've had everything in it. It might've been somewhat interesting, but it wouldn't have had that authenticity that this one has for better or worse. And I think for better, actually, I really do think that uh, a lot of the choices that are only in this version are really, you know, fascinating. And I, um, whether they work or not in the grand scheme of things, I still love watching them. I still love seeing it in action, especially after many years of not seeing it, of like wishing that there would be a new cut or a longer cut or whatever, because, you know, I think back to when I was in film school um, in the early nineties and this film came out, but shortly thereafter, a friend of mine got a bootleg VHS of the, the cut they, they test screened, which is different than the work print or, or the, uh, the assembly cut rather. And, um, you know, seeing that, I realized, oh, there's definitely more to this. Like there, there, there's potential here that it might not be realized fully, but it's there under the wreckage of everything. So from that point, like from the early nineties up until I got to actually, you know, work on this project, um, I was always fantasizing about there being this lost, this mythical lost version of alien three that would fix everything, or at least, you know, bring it to its full potential. And, um, you know, I think what we found was was really cool and very um, um, satisfying as kind of an archaeological dig of a movie, you know. And I definitely think it's better in many ways than the theatrical cut. And I'm glad people seem to enjoy it. I mean, I, every once in a while, I'll just check Twitter to see what the chatter is on the assembly cut. And they'll it's all these people saying, oh, well, you haven't seen anything 3 unless you've seen the assembly cut or some version of that. And I always think that's that's, you know, amusing and, you know, it's nice to see, I guess. But I'm glad that people have embraced it. Although I have to say, I think a small percentage of them are embracing it only because it's different, because it's like something that's not the original, you know, like they want to be in that cool kids crowd um, because I'm not sure they really know the differences, but they, you know, it's I'll, look, I'll, 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 I'll take, you know, the bandwagon is big enough for everybody. So I'll just say that. Um, look at those things. And those things are just on the left. Did you see those kind of like iron bits of decor that looked almost like Spanish, like almost like conquistador looking stuff. Did you spot that before? I didn't see it. Like the, see wrought, it the wrought iron over on this, on the side. Yeah. They look like little, but there's bits of decor. That's not part of the bars. Um, oh, I didn't see that. It almost looked like a conquistador helmet or something, but um, maybe I'll see it again. I'll point it out. But see, that's the thing. Like I, every time I watch this film, I see something new. Um, Come on, tilt down. Let's see. 
I think I actually saw it for a flash when he drew the axe back. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. It was so fast. I didn't want to point it out, but yeah. A little bit of it there. That's not yeah, what I'm right talking about. Yeah, right there. Yeah. There it is, like that. that what is that? Like the, like, uh, that looks like the, oh the gosh. like the cross from like we see in the fountain, right? Like the, mm-hmm. reminds me yeah. a lot of those scenes in the fountain, actually. Which we are about to do a Sublime Noise episode on for our patrons listening. Look almost Aztec. Mm-hmm. And there's brickwork. I just can't imagine bricks being sent from Earth. It's just. I mean, I guess they, they could have been. They could have been milled there, right? I mean, they could. I guess have just, so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, look at those Coke bottles. See those things? Yep. yep. And we get a good close up in a minute. I just like how perfectly organized they are for the inevitable <laughs> shot of, of eighty five drinking a Coke bottle. But it just seems like that's such a Fincher commercial type of thing to do, just to mm-hmm. have Coke ready to go. Coca-Cola, I mean. And yet Pepsi got the tie-in deal. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that shot of 85 <laughs> loco facing out. It's so funny. One of the guys down on the ground has what appears to be a medical kit with a needle, like he's got morphine or something to inject. Mm-hmm. Why Ripley doesn't consider lethal injection, I don't know. Or just walk out onto the planet. Well, I mean, there's oxygen, right? I mean, because Clemens brought her in. True. She could drown herself. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, also, if we're taking the continuity from the assembly cut, the alien can still come from a dead host organism, right? That's so true. The only way to really make sure is to burn yourself to death. Maybe. There you go. With the injection. Danny Webb is such a good actor too. He, He makes so much of every scene that he's in in this movie. It's a great cast. I love that moment. I forget who he runs into, but when they're they're chasing around and like they bump into each other and like there's that moment of levity in the middle of all this, just you know, it's a nice choice, nice little moment to have. Yeah, and they laugh about it, which is which is great. Shows like history between the characters. Yeah. All that talk about like, you know, it's a bunch of ball guys. I can't tell who's who. It's like I think there's plenty of distinction, like distinction between these characters. Um like if you really break it down visually, they're all different. Yeah, they're all bald, but they're all each one has like their own little thing. It's like saying the colonial marines are all the same because they're all wearing armor. It's like it's like I I don't I think it was just a lazy criticism this film got. Look like at that, four different looking guys completely. Well, mm-hmm. and as the movie goes on, I, this is something we talked with Sarah Welch Larson about. You know, the, the movie starts with them so depersonalized because they really do look almost identical in their early stages of the movie. And then as it goes on and they get injured, I mean, you have Morse with his chain there. You know, you have Jude with the cigarette he's putting out. 
Yeah, they all get these little these little visual cues that differentiate them. And I think it's part of the repersonalization of their journey. I think they're coming back into being human beings again. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that visually, you know. And of course, we see Charles S. Dutton with the fucking beautiful fire red axe there. It's another example of just like a visual cue that differentiates him, that sets him apart, that makes us notice him as an individual, not just part of this faceless mob. That previous shot, Ripley had her back to us. Do you remember that? We just passed it. I don't know if you noticed it. It's such a weird place for her to be, like with her back so deliberately to us. Do you think that was a double? Like Sigourney wasn't available and they got a double? I don't know. It it just seemed like a bizarre bit of blocking or whatever um, to me that I never caught before. How big was her head? <laughs> That's one one way to find out. So the Whaling Natani patches that are on the um the jackets of the uh the guards, the wardens, are embroidered, and the patches mm-hmm. that are on the prisoners' jackets are screen printed. So there's there's already just in that little detail, there's a mass produced versus a slightly more, you know, I don't know how to put that better, but just in- interesting details. Like a, like a class difference between yeah you know, you can, not that embroidery is, is hugely expensive but the embroidery yeah. is saved only for the the minders and the gen pop has to has to just use screen printed ones hmm. i love the shot here of them standing in front of the you know the um whatever that that opening is with that long red opening it just looks like a church it's a cathedral but it's a kind of cathedral of death it's just beautiful it's it's like that plus almost like a, a cremation um, yes machine furnace and even the shape of it harkens back a little bit for me visually to the nostromo's hallways and i think that there's there's something that feels almost like a, an echo of that and i i think a lot of the these these final parts of this film do a beautiful job of not explicitly but kind of subtly bringing us back on the Nostromo again with Ripley so that by the time we come to the end of the movie we felt like we've kind of returned home a little bit um but that could just be the way I'm watching it uh, I think that's fair I mean I never thought of it that way but um I mean obviously the final scene is pretty clear but um but even this, like these steady cam shots walking down mm-hmm. hallways, like this, just it feels like that. That looks exactly like the service bay on the Nostromo to me. They're right there, except for the that doesn't have as much wires, you know. Was that the first of the alien vision shots a second ago, or have we not gotten those yet? I don't think we've gotten them yet. Okay. Yeah, that was still widescreen. Okay. Ah. It needs to have that kind of fisheye distortion. Which apparently, by the way, not the, not the fisheye distortion, but the operation of the Steadicam shot uh, flipping around upside down was kind of an accident that happened on set. Fincher saw it and liked it. And, uh, really? He asked the Steadicam operator, "Can you can you do that when you're you know when you're running?" He's like, "Yeah, for sure." And then he just did it, and then suddenly it became a thing they used. So I remember Christian, the shot was a big groan in the, in the theater opening day. It was like we saw the tail and the audience kind of got, you know, apprehensive. And then the reveal of the rod puppet, and it was kind of like, oh. 
like his disappointment when they saw what it looked like. Christian, a while ago we were talking about scenes that show the alien overtly eating somebody. Is that the one that you were talking about? Uh, one of them here. There's a. It, it definitely you see like a mouthful of of uh, prisoner. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, preaching any sort of gospel there. That's just that's what people point to when they use when they have their aliens in, in novels or comics eating humans. It's like, well, it's an alien three. Yeah, but I'm I'm curious about exactly what shot they're talking about because because to me like that one, I always thought that was it. Like I always thought that was the big eating shot that everyone referred to. I think it's distracting how much pelvic thrusting is going <laughs> on. <in this> <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure Ge- I'm sure Giger loved that. Like Giger thought the pelvic thrusting was right on point. Make it hump it more. Yeah. So there we go. There, there's that pancake lens. Mm. Mm. That's, that's, that shot's okay. I don't think that that's a bad great. shot. That's really good. Um, I am wondering why the alien isn't um, preparing these guys as potential hosts. If it, if it knows there's a queen on the way, yeah. why are these guys not being like resined up and uh, cocooned? There were plans for something like that, right? They called the meat locker. Hmm. Um. What was your approach in terms of dealing with the comp- the composite of the rod puppet? Was it something you guys tried to make it look look a little bit better, or how did you even approach that? Um, well, like I said, like that stuff was off limits. That was that was in the original cut, um, and you know that it was not uh, connected at all to the uh, the assembly material. And what little there was, like for instance, the baby burster stuff, that was a CG. Um, alien which i think looked pretty clean for the most part um and then anything that was uh assembly cut but had been developed as a rod puppet shot we left as is because again that was like authentic original visual effects work that we didn't want to you know step all over with uh with what we were doing can you explain the chocolate alien to me what, what you just referred to or what the shot was <laughs> why does it look like it's made out of chocolate in these shots maybe it is i don't know <laughs> <laughs> certain <laughs> things certain things we just don't know but that is the puppet right yeah now this is all, every pretty much everything you see except it's for the obvious puppet. like tom woodruff stuff is the puppet like here comes the here comes the worst puppet shot of all time is the boom that thing yeah. oh my god <laughs> Oh, but delicious uh, because on, on the commentary track on alien three, even Richard Edlin himself says like that shot sucks. He's like, he's, he, he knows like that was just a, it kind of screwed the pooch on that one. And uh, it's, it's a shame, but again, I'm sure, you know, schedule budget, new technology, by the way, the, for all the grief, the rod puppet stuff gets, you have to understand this alien three hit at like the crossroads of optical and digital visual effects filmmaking. You know, it wasn't quite ready for, for digital. And optical was getting pretty ho-hum in terms of what you could do. So they were obviously trying to push the envelope and it just wasn't, they weren't there yet. You know, it was just, it was just too ambitious of a, of a plan and uh, they didn't have the technology to support their ideas. So, I mean, I, I give them props for taking a big swing. It's just, uh, they weren't quite there yet with the technology. 
and for, for what it's worth for me it, it if anything contributes to the dreamlike quality of a lot of the stuff like the fact that the alien doesn't look the same in consecutive shots it just sort of it's just disorienting you know it's never really bothered me that much it bothered me just because it pulls me out of this film that i think is just wonderful especially in light of the first two films where the alien the creature work is so great it's so almost flawless and then you go to the last one and it's like the ball was dropped not intentionally but those grates above her head have a very star wars feel mm -hmm. the the lozenge shape may the fourth be with you <laughs> and also with you i'm glad this guy got a little more time in this cut because I remember in the, the original cut when I saw in theater, it was like, why are we spending so much time with this wimp who's just like break, breaking down all of a sudden? It's like, he's so like just sad. And why didn't we see this guy earlier? Because kind of came out of nowhere. I love this music cue right here, which I call the Whale and Yutani theme, um, which I don't know if that's what Alan Goldenthal imagined, but that's the first time we hear this theme is when these guys show up. And I just love that it's so like big and overwhelming and like, it, it feels like I'm looking at a giant whaling tiny skyscraper in music form, you know, it's just like so big. The pounding um, timpani and stuff. Yeah. And we, so we use that um, for the, uh, in the, in the early shots on the surface when Clemens is carrying Ripley in um, because there was no music in the assembly cut version um, or finished music anyway. And we didn't get clear notes from anybody uh, in regards to what the music was supposed to be in these new scenes. And because it was a big reveal shot of the Whaling Yutani, you know, facility for the first time, I thought, let's go with that theme, which was like one of my favorite themes in the movie. So that was my call correctly or incorrectly to go with that big Whaling Yutani theme early on to just kind of, it also raised the stakes of it. It's like, oh, something really big is happening. So it felt like the right thing to do. But we had heard a rumor that Fincher didn't want any music in the movie originally. And I'm, I don't know exactly who conveyed this message back and forth, but we heard through the kind of underground grapevine we had of, you know, we didn't get, again, we didn't get notes. We didn't get any feedback. There's no interest at all, but occasionally we'd get a hint of a, a bit of information. And apparently someone asked Fincher, like, was there not supposed to be music in Alien 3? And he's like, who the hell said that? So we took that as a, oh, there was supposed to be music. And therefore we put music in. And he also worked with Elliot for over a year on the score. So like, this yeah. is a pretty long process. And it's a fantastic score. It's absolutely magnificent. Um, I mean, everything Elliot Goldenthal does, I think is incredible, but like, this was just brilliant. Probably my favorite score of all the movies, to be honest, of all the alien movies. Um, yeah. I forgot a major tie-in. Um, the, the lead Japanese scientist of the William Yutani team that comes in, his name is Matsushita. And he comes back in a novel called Alien into Charybdis and has a, a rather major role. So that was a fun tie-in mm -hmm. from this film. Have you read all the tie-in books and comics and everything? I get paid to. They pay me to read them. Okay. I was curious if you actually have <laughs> notched every single thing. Um, a ridiculous amount of them, yes. Cool. I, I would say I probably hit 80% to 85% to of them in my lifetime. But there's there's some things out there that I come across and I'm like shit like a lot of like the S.D. Perry novels and things I just I need to like go back and catch up on. But anything in, in the last decade, I, I think between the three of us, we probably read all of it. 
I love their gear that they they have a cage yeah. they're bringing in. Yeah, it, it looks like the, the shark cage from Jaws. Um, they're bringing along. Well, I and if you check the, the, I love these they, suits. Each commando has a chain link, uh, chainmail glove like a shark, like you'd use in a shark cage too. Mm-hmm. This guy, that's Matsushita. Yeah. Yeah, I was really close to commissioning um, uh, Terry English to uh, make me one of these Wailing Tiny Trooper helmets because I just think they're so badass yep. and beautiful and kind of like ancient looking too. I mean, they're really great. Here's that scene we we're talking about. Yeah, a little character building. It's just great. The the look of the commandos in particular, I think, uh, is is one of the one of the more indelible visual cues from this movie, and it's amazing that it's featured so little in it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting they they bring back the pulse rifles from Aliens, but. Um... I would love to have seen these like commando uniforms show up uh, in some other anything. I mean, have they shown up? I mean, I know there's been like action figures, but have they shown up in other games or or comics or? The video games are never want to use the original styles. They always want to tweak everything. So we've had Willie Natani soldiers, but they wear baseball caps. Just mm. it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I love this look, and it has such a callbacks to the Nostromo spacesuits totally. Mobius design. Absolutely. Plus there's graffiti on them. So these mm-hmm. guys have done other missions. They have kill counts and names and things. I loved Alien Isolation. I thought that did a really great job of capturing what we know and love, but then taking it further. You know? Yeah. It's what were the robots called? Regular Joes? Or what were they called? The average Joes? Or what? Working. Working Joes. Working Joes, yeah. Those, those guys were creepy as hell, and I loved them. They were so good. The, the guys know this, but my eight-year-old is currently playing it from the beginning for the first time. He's he's watched me play a lot of it, and we've done the DLC together. But um, he's it's it's getting to see him experience it, and that same sense of reverence for it is just uh, I'm, I'm maybe I'm a bad parent, but it's it's pretty amazing <laughs> to watch him do that. It's a great. My game. nine-year-old beat it, so I'm curious if Patrick's son is going to beat my son's record. Ah, the race is on. So that tail is amazing. It looks better. I don't know. Sometimes I can just look at the tail and ignore the rest of the rod puppet. There's a chocolate. Uh, here's a question I have is like, what if you were to take the jaws approach of like using the barrels instead of the shark to show the shark? Is there something they could have come up with to create the impression the alien is there? And then of course you have all the, these like great Tom Woodruff shots where it's really him in the suit, but for all like the running stuff that they had to use the puppet, cause there's no other way to do it really. Or even like that is like, there's some other, like, and again, in addition, in addition to the POV shots, I just wonder if there's some other way to establish the alien on the move versus just showing the puppet. Cause it really does take you out of the movie. Hmm. And even jaws with big, you know, big rubber shark, uh, occasionally it was okay because you just, you bought into it because you were so immersed because you didn't see the shark until like the second half of the movie. And even then you barely saw it, you know? Um, and I feel like this being the third movie, we've already, we already know kind of what the alien looks like for the most part, but is there some way to kind of convey, like these brief, like brief glimpses, I think are awesome. I think they're really effective. It's the problem going forward too, though, because now people expect that you'll see a lot of every monster because yeah. of the whole CGI thing. I don't know what we do in the future. But also, I'm probably cutting back. You know, 
it's interesting that for a movie that's so visually dark, the creature is almost always shown completely lit, right? Except for these shots, like when Woodruff's in the shoot, but all, all the rod puppet shots, they're, they're very bright. Like the chocolate thing I was talking, like that, that it looks out of place because it's like so so visually easy to see. So I, I, I wonder if even just darkening it, you know, would help. Maybe. Does the rod, the, the raw footage of the rod puppet still exist? Uh, with like the blue screen background, like yeah. the uncomped versions. Uh, I'm sure they do. We, uh, I believe we had access to them because I, I think they, we used a bit in the documentary um, in Optical Fury on the visual effects chapter. But um, again, that was not our goal. So we didn't dwell on that because we had so many other things we had to do. Yeah. Like in hindsight, I wonder, maybe we should have tried to do a little bit of a cleanup, kind of like what they did on Star Trek motion picture recently. Um, but um, that was not our brief. And I, I really, again, we were working on three different alien movies simultaneously. And it's like, that's a lot to take on, you know? Yeah. Especially when the director of the first one is actively involved. And it's like, and we had to give him quite a bit of attention to make sure that, you know, he was uh, taken care of. So um, it's a lot. It's a miracle, frankly, we got it done as, as well as we did in the first pass. And then that Fox was so great to let us go in and do a polish on the Blu-ray. Like, um, I, I have no complaints basically about um, what was done creatively or in terms of restoration, because um, it was it was like a perfect storm, like where you had a studio that was willing to do it. You had the elements still around and, you, you know, we found these lost cuts and then we were able to kind of get to it. Um, So we're going to start to see some, there's some LA footage, I believe. I think that's an LA shot. Just look at her head. <laughs> Do you have a preference on the ending? Um, that's a great question. I, um, I get why the non chest there's LA. I get why the non chestburster version. I say that's definitely LA right there. Yeah. The non chestburster version is better for the, the Fincher of it all, I guess, in terms of like what the original vision was and how it serves. I don't know. It, it's more uncomfortable because you don't have that closure. Um, but I do think there's something to be said about showing that there's the one CG shot in the movie we just passed. Um, there is something to be said about the, the satisfaction of knowing that she succeeded in what she was doing for sure. Like absolute evidence. Like, yeah, she took that thing to its death with her. So um, I'm kind of 50, 50, to be honest, it's, is, is Deckard replicant. I don't know. Um, <laughs> either way it's fine. Um, do you, do you have a preference? I'm torn about it personally. I, yeah. I like the dignity of no alien, but um, symbolically, just the, the the visual payoff of seeing it. I don't know. It's yeah. I feel the same way. How about you guys? Uh, Jamie, you, you go. I'm fifty fifty two. I don't I don't need to see the ch the chestburster. I think it is more poetic to see her just go into the the lead, but they both work. 
I, I prefer the theatrical, honestly. I, I think partly because my emotional connection to it is so strong because it has just meant so much to me for my whole life before had this version came out, you know, so I feel kind of attached to it. But also I think because the the um the way that the that's shot with like that all-encompassing, almost like she's jumping into the sun to me feels I don't know, more it, it works for me a little bit better in the theatrical. I like this version of it quite a bit too, but that's that's one that I prefer. So speaking of is Decker replicant, is Bishop human or droid? <laughs> I think he's human, by the way. I, I've, I've thought about it quite a bit. I've gone back and forth. I'm now in the human camp, in the uh, Bishop Hume camp. <laughs> How are you guys? Well, the new retcon version is that he's a human who has augmented himself because he works in cybernetics or whatever. Yeah. And so that explains how he can survive yeah. an incredibly traumatic head wound. It's like Lance, Lance Hendrickson thing. says that the ear came from Jack Nicholson, but he says the wrong movie. He always says that it was from Batman. Well, I guess I, no. I guess that tracks. Batman was a few years before this. Um, did you do you know anything about that? Whose ear Jack Nicholson? The uh, mm-hmm. it was like a last minute decision, right? I think he's human for what it's worth. I think it's just kind of a, a little bit of a, a clumsy makeup shot, but I, I think he's human. I agree. I think he's human. Because if they could make, you know, synthetics with red blood just to make them more camouflaged, I guess they would have been doing it since the time of Ash and certainly Bishop and aliens who had, you know, the, the milk, um, you know, he could have had red blood. So it's like, it, it, he has to be human. And yet the credits say Bishop too. So that's where it all comes, comes from. Maybe it's Bishop the second. Maybe it's, you know. Bishop Jr. T-O-O. <laughs> it's pretty creepy here though, I gotta say. It's very... I'm not convinced Lance Hendrickson isn't synthetic. Yeah. They don't use the same sound effect for the pulse rifles, mm-hmm. which is fine. They, but they went to the trouble of rebuilding them. You know, Bapti was involved, but. There's so much aliens in this movie that I, I don't think it gets enough credit how much Bishop is present. We, we talked about this before, um, how much Newt and Hicks are present, how much this film is a kind of a long grief of, of aliens in its own way. Poor 85. <sighs> He's 86 now. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Well played. We're going to get the big video camera in a second. Yeah. (laughs) And Bishop says, stop recording or something. It's very strange. Like no cameras? Yeah. 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 
like a home video camera from late it's, it's like it's got to be like super like 4d and like you know some kind of got like eight lenses inside of it <laughs> look at that fucking head wound that is that is rough yeah so we, we had a bit of a problem with um the visual effect shot of ripley falling into the into the fire um which was that the alternate element of her falling in without the chest burster coming out was shot, you know, very like smoothly in terms of the frame rate. So it didn't have that like staccato step frame look that the theatrical cut had. So we artificially added it in here, this, because it looked like the fakest, stupidest thing going in smooth, going in like 24 frames, just normal. And by adding that little bit of staccato, it kind of called back to the theatrical cut, but it seemed again, more stylized and more poetic and blah, blah, blah. So I've had people tell me like, you know, why didn't you fix that? It's like, well, again, we were trying to stay truthful to the creative process that was happening, but we didn't have the original footage that was clean going in. The distance seems so much more believable in that cut. You know, she she falls and then she hits, and then the other one it just keeps falling. <laughs> yeah, but that is why I love the theatrical cut ending so much, is because it it feels like it 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 goes into the realm of like dreams again. It's just like sort of a larger than reality moment, you know. <laughs> He's such a good actor. See, this is just the perfect way to end like this trilogy of films It's like, I mean, like there shouldn't have been more after this, in my opinion, but at least in terms of there, there should have been a resurrection is what I'm saying or AVPs because like this is such a beautiful ending to what was like nice, you know, nice put together, not perfect, but still coherent trilogy of a birth, life and death. Totally agreed. Resurrection and the two AVPs feel like their own trilogy, mm-hmm. just with the the tone and the and the look of it all. Right. Yeah, I, I buy that. Um, they definitely feel like films made for aliens fans who are gamers, you know, who are more into like the shoot 'em up, lock and load, kick ass version of the Alien universe, um, which is fine. Like, there's, uh, you know, again, I get the appeal of Aliens as like a as like a badass you know let's go kill some bugs movie um it's just not what i signed up for as a kid you know 11 year old seeing alien for the first time at the egyptian theater in hollywood like that that scarred my brain like that that was the alien universe for me and and aliens kind of got back to some of that with but still adding all this other kind of like fun to it so to come back to alien 3 and end with alien 3 was again for me it's nice closure and then what went beyond with with resurrection and avp movies felt like it was just giving aliens fans more of what they really wanted from aliens. Even if it wasn't as good, it was still like, let's go kill some bugs. You know, um, I get it. It's just different. It's different flavors for different customers. You know, it's there's, there's no downside to it. Just so long as everyone gets served. It's great. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's kind of a shame that it's looking like there might not be a third movie in the Prometheus cycle just to see how that resolved. I mean, I'm sure we could all kind of guess or imagine um, based on David's 
last actions and the whole biomechanoid of it all, um, where maybe he would, you know, create the alien that we know and love as being like fully biomechanoid versus more of a creature that we've seen over the last several films. But who knows? Um, I guess we'll see where it goes. I mean, that's the thing is like, there's so many different ways now to tell stories. You don't have to be just features. It doesn't have to be TV. It could be games or comics or all these other things that have already been explored, but why not do it with like the creator of the original film? Who's obviously got more to say about it. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, like you said, with alien isolation, I never expected a video game to be so faithful and immersive and also expand the world like that. So that opened my eyes. Totally agree. Yeah, Alien Isolation was to me like the the first thing since the original films came out that that I felt that deeply passionate about from a, from an alien standpoint. And I think a lot of it is like that mixture of reverence and, and willingness to take risks with the storytelling to play with the sacred cows that we got used to. But also just the fact that like when you play, for example, the last Survivor content, or not the last one, the crew expendable content, you can actually recreate, like I, we did this on Alien Day, we recreated the first like 10 minutes of Alien by just being in the ship and like walking around the, the bay and going into the mother room. So there's like, that's that sense of complete immersion in this material is is just like in, incredibly good. That being said though, I think we've seen, especially with the Alex White novels, Into Charybdis, one that, that Christian just mentioned being uh, uh, their more recent one, but also before that, uh, Alien the Cold Forge, uh, you know, that's a, another great example of somebody who just understands on a really deep thematic level how you can push the boundaries of alien storytelling. And I, I feel, especially with Noah Hawley and Fede Alvarez, that we're actually in really good hands at the moment. I worry somewhat about this, the studio because they've really closed themselves off so much to, to fans and giving access to us, not, even just for, you know, feedback. Um, that being said, like, it's not their job to do that necessarily. And I'm sure that they have other plans, but, you know, I mean, we're recording this on star Wars day and, and I don't, I don't know about all of you, but I, mean, I, I do know that you're all star Wars fans as, as am I, you know, it's been f every, every angle has been star Wars bombarding us all day. And we had the Obi-Wan full trailer come out and we had, you know, all of these emails and push notifications from major news outlets. And I know that alien and star Wars are very different and that the size of the audience is completely different. And I understand that. And I don't argue with that whatsoever, but it would have been nice to have just some acknowledgement on alien day of us out here in love with this franchise, you know, and we didn't get anything. So I'm, you know, optimistic about the future, but I'm also realizing that I have very little say in that future. And it's a little bit of a, and it's, it's a, just a strange, a strange moment to be a fan, I think. Well, it's just a, a lack of acknowledgement, really, more than it is them throwing us anything or throwing the fans anything, just a lack of acknowledgement since Fox was taken over, which I think is frustrating for sure. Um, yeah, well, maybe they're, they're just still trying to figure things out and maybe they want to wait until they've got something to tease, like seriously, like wait until the new show is in production or wait until the new movie's in production and, you know, have something like maybe for next year on, you know, Alien Day, they'll have something or Comic-Con or I mean, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't know what their plans are, but I, I, I would imagine they wouldn't want to get people excited until there's something to follow it up with until the actual thing comes out. Because that's one thing I've always noticed about movie marketing is that you can get people riled up and excited pretty easily, but you need to, you need to feed that beast, you know, you need to, you know, keep that vein tapped. <laughs> you know, you got to just keep it going. And if you don't have it, you've, you've squandered that initial, you know, impulse 
that people, you know, indulged in the excitement of it, that you're going to lose that. So I don't, I, th I think there's a plan for everything. It's just, uh, it sucks that it's not as uh, normalized as maybe like star Wars or star Trek or anything else, but um, uh, maybe it'll get there. You know, we'll see maybe if there's excitement about the new show and the new movie, maybe it'll, it'll be a Renaissance of some kind for uh, alien. Wouldn't that By the way, we, are we look totally off the tape now. Are we, like, are we, yeah. are we still recording? The or file's not? done. We're still yeah, recording. We're, yeah. yeah, we'll go ahead and close. Um, but I guess but before we do, I have one one last question for you, Charles. And I also want to say to people, Blade Runner has come up quite a bit tonight. And it's not only because we also have a Blade Runner podcast. It's because Charles de Lazarica happens to be not only a Blade Runner super fan, but also the reason why we have the final cut. He worked with Ridley Scott on that. And there's amazing stories behind that, which you can hear on our other show. Um, and he was at our live event in LA in 2019 and has been on, uh, you know, multiple times as a guest. So uh, I want to just, you know, give you credit for that, that. He's like the authority on it, which is really, really cool. But speaking oh. of Blade Runner, my question for you is Jordan Cronoweth is thanked at the end there in the credits. Can you give us a little window into why? Well, I mean, Jordan Cronoweth, who's, you know, probably my favorite cinematographer ever, uh, was the original DP on, on Alien 3. Uh, Fincher was a huge fan of his and brought him in. And I believe he might have shot the Coke commercial, uh, the rollerblade, the Blade Runner-ish rollerblade commercial that Fincher directed, I believe. I'm not 100% sure on that. But anyway, so Cronoweth was the DP for the first uh, number of days. I don't know if it went into weeks, but it was long enough that they realized that he was ill and not well enough to continue because he was just operating at kind of a slower pace than anyone else was and that they could afford. And if you watch uh, Wreckage and Rage, um, there's a section we devote to Jordan Cronoweth and working with Fincher. And you can see Fincher is uncharacteristically very soft and delicate and sympathetic with him and almost like, like, like a son talking to his, you know, his elderly father or whatever. Like there's, there's, there's a very sweet, there's a sweetness to it. There's a very sweet relationship between the two in just those, you know, a few minutes of footage where uh, you can tell that Fincher's worried, not just about the film, but about Jordan himself. So um, as was discovered, uh, I think um, around the time of Blade Runner that, um, you know, he had Parkinson's and he was slow on Blade Runner as well. I mean, that was a, that was definitely a problem with Blade Runner going over schedule was, you know, it wasn't just Ridley being a perfectionist. It was Jordan was slow. Um, but, you know, but luckily they were allowed to finish the film with him. I mean, there are other cinematographers came in to pick up little things here and there, but Jordan shot most of it. And that's why that film is, looks as amazing as it does. Um, so, you know, it was just kind of a, a sad thing that Jordan was misdiagnosed uh, with having something else and not Parkinson's that he was never treated correctly early enough on. And I'm, I'm not sure if Alien 3 was the last film he worked on as like full DP for, for a feature, but it was one of the, 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 the last ones. Um, and um, yeah, so we, 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 I'm glad we got to talk about that a bit because, you know, some of his shots that are in the, on the finished film are gorgeous. And Alex Thompson mentions that in the documentary that, you know, when, when they had to replace him and Alex came in and they, you know, they watched all the dailies that they had shot apologies they watched all the dailies and um alex was sort of like wow how are we gonna how am i gonna match this like this is so great and alex thompson is a phenomenal cinematographer he was um i mean when he was with us and um, he shot legend for ridley so you know really tremendous cinematographer in his own right but 
he uh you could tell like he was like daunted by you know having to follow in jordan's footsteps even jordan not in his best shape um is still one of like the, the, the master cinematographers of all time yeah and, and the fact that his name comes right there at the very end of the credits is, is it's very special for for those of us who loved and admired his work no absolutely and i and you know again it's it's a, it's a sadness that he couldn't finish the whole thing but i thought alex thompson did an amazing job and you know, picking up where he left off and, um, and, and of course, Fincher kind of, you know, running rough shot over all that because he's also an amazing, you know, photographer as, you know, as director. Um, that was like, I guess that was one of the big, uh, insults. The, the, the studio brass were lobbying at Fincher was he's a great shooter. He's a great shooter. And it's like, as if he wasn't a great storyteller, as if he wasn't a great actor's director, which he is, you know? So it's just, it's just interesting that like, that's a derogatory term. They call him a shooter, which is putting him in the same league in this, in this case with uh, Jordan Cronoweth and Alex Thompson. What else? What else you got? Well, <laughs> that's all that I have. Yeah, I think I, I want to be, you know, you've been so incredibly gracious to spend three hours with us tonight on this commentary track. I I, I guess my, my final thing would be, you know, both you and Christian, thank you very much, had <laughs> uh, corrections for us on our previous commentary. Uh -huh. uh, do, do you remember, do we, do we miss any of them tonight? Because, you know, we're a hard-hitting journalism podcast here. We need to get the facts right. You know, I, I'm okay being fact-checked. What do you got? Well, he kind of corrected us earlier, like I mentioned in our previous commentary about the notes from Fincher, but they weren't from, there were no notes from Fincher, but I, of course, had heard that and whatever just confused it. So I I don't know what else there was. Well, you guys were talking about the, when we find Ripley on the beach covered in, in oil uh, being a, a dummy. And while there may have been a dummy made, that, that was Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. The, the dummy was used for Charles Nance to carry. Uh, you know, as he was riding into the, the, the facility, but all those shots of Ripley on the beach, that was Sigourney Weaver on the beach. Which makes it even more unfortunate that they didn't make the theatrical cut of the movie because she had to be covered in garbage on a beach <laughs> in the cold, you know? Well, apparently, uh, I only heard this recently that, um, the, um, the, the, the lice, is that what they are? Like, I forget what the, the, the things are, the, the bugs, um, that got like thrown on her. I don't think they're actually lice. Or they, they must have been something else. Um, they're called lice in the movie, but they're clearly not because they're... That's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't know what the actual bugs stomach. were, yeah. but apparently she had a mouthful of those uh, in the first oh, like, dump. And she was not too happy about that for being like early on, like day one, or you know, probably day one or two. But uh, yeah, that, that's the only thing I know about like her relationship with the, with the bugs. But uh, no, that was definitely her on the beach. That opening is very bizarre. Like how she was physically ejected from the entire EEV. But, and so the reshoot makes sense for that, but my God, the production value that they'd already spent the money and then they cut it out of the movie and reshoot. Uh, it, it's hard. It hurts my, hurts my soul when you see how beautiful and how expansive it makes that world. Cause the rest of the movie were, were entirely in, within that facility. So to get that little breathing room is really nice. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I, in, in, in regards to how she got out of the EEV and onto the beach, um, I mean, look, there's, there's, there, there are leaps of faith when, when, <laughs> when you're, when you're telling a story and there's all kinds of just like, you know, suspension of disbelief when you have to get from point A to point B, it's like, you know, how did, how did 
Indiana Jones get from the Nazi sub uh, to the base before the sub got there? Like, how did that happen? Forget, forget how he survived being on a sub for five days. How did he, how did he swim faster than the sub to get to the base? It's okay. Because by that point we love Indy and we were, all, we're along for the ride. Ripley, we've already been through hell with her twice. And it's kind of like, it's a ship. It crashed. She got ejected. She hit the beach, you know, or she walked, maybe she just like fell right out into the water and the, and the tide took her into the beach. It's like, we don't need to be asking these questions. A better question is, you know, how did the egg get on the, the Sulaco? And I don't know if you caught this, but in the menus we made for the anthology, you know, we try to address that. I mean, have you paid attention to the menus on the Alien 3? I've seen that, yeah. So it's like, if, if, you, if you watch, it's like each disc is color-coded, like Alien is green, Alien is blue, and then Alien 3 is kind of like amber. Yellow, yeah. But, but, but we break color, the color rule, just once across all six of those discs when it goes to like red alert, red alert, and then we see, you know, alien infestation on the Sulaco. We try to like cobble together clips from aliens to show the egg sack. And then, you know, we, we tried our best. That's, like, that's the best we could do to patch that hole. Um, but, you know, I, I hope that people took it with the tongue in cheek, you know, sentiment was offered because it's just like, it was, it was not meant to be taken seriously or as canon, but I get, I get nailed on it all the time. Like with the, the little, um, merging of Ridley verses between uh, Tyrell and Wayland in the Prometheus Blu-ray, where I kind of wrote them together in the same universe without mentioning names, but people totally got it. And everyone's like saying, oh, it's canon now. It's absolutely canon. And I, I have to always go say, no, it's a little joke. You know, lighten up. It's lighten up, Francis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Charles. For, yes. For this. Thank you so much for coming on. Was this, was this any, was this good? Was this interesting at all? Cause I oh, feel like. Yes. It was amazing. Oh, yes. Of stuff I've never heard before. Together, so, what's that? It's that stuff I've never heard before. Oh, okay. So it's like watching I, the movie brand new again. Yeah. Well, we were, when we were halfway through, I thought, oh man, this is going to go on for that like six hours, and then and then suddenly we were at the end. I was like, oh, that's that was cool. Like that was a nice <laughs> final stretch. But uh, thank you for indulging me. Um, it was it was fun, and uh, and now I don't have to watch Alien Three for another ten years. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you, and thank you to our listeners for listening, and uh, be sure to. Check out perhaps our commentary for Blade Runner, which Charles has graciously suggested he come on and talk about the final cut. So we will be back with you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.